0: Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I apologize for the weird glitchiness of the opening there. There's something going on with my stream yard on this end. Not a surprise for the day that it is, but thank you for joining us on the anniversary of September 11th. Joining me today yet again is James Corbett and Brock West. Excited to be here to be airing the world premiere of their outstanding part three of this outstanding documentary series. How are you guys today?
1: Very good. Very exhausted. Very exhausted. Like yeah. ready to do this.
0: I can imagine. I can imagine. I wanted to shout out a couple of things before we get started on this. I'm really excited. One that I have not watched this yet. I wanted to make sure I watched it live with you guys. You could we can jump in, we're gonna make comments if you know, if and when it's important to do so. And I want to make sure that I reiterate something that I didn't really make clear the second time, which is that one of the main reasons we're doing this, the watch along and 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 the documentary on TLAV is to is to promote the idea of the pirate streams. T. Lab Pirate Streams, Corbett Pirate Streams. The idea that what we're doing is essentially trying to re, you mm. know, reimagine, to use their word, the model that they're trying to put out, and make sure we can circumvent their censorship, and that's by using channels of our users that allow them allow them to be used. And so we can jump from channel to channel as we continue to get censored over and over and over. And so we want to do that today. And James is doing this as well. So I think that's a really important thing to help us fight past this censorship today. And I thought it was really funny that as I was dealing with my pirate stream channels, I realized I just got an appeal, that which I do appeal, by the way, every time it happens, every single day, I did get an approved appeal. Even though I typed cowards, hashtag kill pirate streams, and they gave it. Who knows what's going on? They're confused, apparently, by all of this. Their algorithms, as James Corbett said, they have broken themselves to censor us. I think it's hilarious.
1: <laughs> the bots must have uh must say well
0: you know it you can't argue with that. Yeah, <laughs> right. maybe we are cowards, you know, but <laughs> but it this is this is a somber day in general guys and I definitely think that this is an important discussion and an important topic that really needs to and I think I mean there's no better day obviously than to see the third part of this come to fruition because this is an important discussion that is in my opinion tied to literally everything we're talking about i know that seems a little yeah. abstract for some people but mm. the biosecurity state is part hopefully two of the that state
1: won't right. be abstract by the time you get to the end of this documentary you'll start to see how this all ties into exactly what we're dealing with today this is not some dusty ancient history this is an essential part of the fabric of the reality of what we're living through right now and uh, i will just say it once again as much as is contained in here there's at least that much that could have been in here. So everyone make note of what you think could have and should have been in part three. And <laughs> I'll make, a, you know, 17 more documentaries <laughs> just about
0: that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to each one. Uh, well, it, 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 before we get into this, though, I didn't know if you guys wanted to say anything in general, uh, you know, just about the work that was done, any notes before we get started or any just kind of comments in general about, you know, September 11th and, and why this is important or, you know, either one of you.
1: Brock, what would you say to introduce people to part three here?
0: Um, I think this is going to be one of
2: the most relevant parts, obviously, because the vast majority of the audience has lived through this. Uh, myself, I'm in my late 30s now, so part one and part two were a little bit just before my time, obviously, in terms of understanding and getting to grips with how the world really works and what's going on. Um, but part three, uh, you know, we, we left off on... The uh, end of part two at the doorstep of, of, of September 11, 2001. And now we're going from then to now. We've all lived this, and I'm very, very excited and very keen to see uh, the audience's reaction. Um, very also excited to uh, take any questions at the end as well. Any questions you guys may have about anything, about the editing process, or about what was left out, or, you know, um, feel free to pick uh, James or myself's brain about it.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. Um, There is, we have all lived through this and presumably people in this audience will have their own perspective on it and and things, but I'm betting there's a lot of stuff in here. There's probably a lot of stuff in here that people didn't know before. There's other things that maybe they did know, but have probably forgotten because in the 24 seven news feeds that keep getting Mm -hmm. churned and people just get pushed along and never have time to actually stop. And oh wait, that was total absolute baloney. And yet we just all kind of believed it for some reason. Um, so uh, hopefully that is part of the process of what's going on here. And yes, um, on the pirate stream note, yes, anyone watching this on YouTube, go elsewhere, please. Uh, you will not find this information um, being broadcast on YouTube, generally speaking, because of course it is know no information to actually inform yourself about what's happening in the world. So yes, please seek out and find alternative platforms. The place to start would be to go to Ryan's work directly, thelastamericanvagabond.com, and then you can find the links to whatever he's doing, or corbettreport.com if you're interested in my work, and you can find the links to the various platforms where I post. YouTube is not one of those platforms. So that is the that is what we're attempting to do, reaching out into the matrix to pull people out of it. And what better way to do that than with a two-hour, 18,000-word deep dive into the past 20 years of history, more relevant today than it, I think it has ever been, um, given the domestic terror ideas and memes that are being bandied about right now, and how this entire war of terror a- apparatus is now being wielded directly at the population. Uh, pretty relevant, I'd say. Anyway, let's echo that. Yes, get your questions in. Whatever platform you're watching, leave questions, and uh, we'll do our best to answer them.
0: Absolutely. And I'd like to make sure we show this for everyone just to know where to find this, the three different parts. I'll include this This actually already posted on the on the page where you can see and, you know, and make sure you go back if you haven't and watch part one, part two. I mean, and really even just go and watch the the documentaries by themselves on Corbett's page, which I'll also include because it's important that you don't just watch this last part. I mean, it's it's going to be the culminating point, but there's so much in it, as Corbett pointed out. That you know, even myself, where you watch the, when you first see these, you it's you think you know this stuff, and then it's amazing. Even parts you didn't know, or parts you forgot about, and it definitely relates, as you guys know, in my opinion, to right this moment. As he pointed out, the directed at you, but in fact, we now see it's even going directed internally in your body. Right? This is your, as Whitney said, your body is the new battlefield, and that's where this seems to be going. So yep. excited to watch this, guys! Let's jump into Let's it. Let's do
1: it. Previously, on the Corbett Report. Meanwhile, in New York, the era of Islamic terror in the United States is about to begin. We have a rabbi shot in a Midtown hotel.
3: <laughs> there is some evidence that the FBI may have known of the plot in advance through an informant and might might even have stopped the bombing that killed six people.
4: We just got a report in that there's been some
0: sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City. Oh, oh, oh.
4: We therefore conclude that there was a high-level decision in the CIA ordering people not to share that information.
1: And in the lead-up to 9-11, a cadre of political operatives brought those plans into the 21st century, paving the way for a new Pearl Harbor that would begin a worldwide war of terror and a clash of civilizations.
5: Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated.
1: Kabul, Afghanistan, August 29, 2021. A white 1996 Toyota Corolla races down the dusty streets of the Afghan capital. Just days earlier, a suicide bombing at the Kabul airport had killed 13 U.S. Marines and dozens of Afghans. American forces, on high alert, track the Corolla from above. An American MQ 9 Reaper drone hovers high up, monitoring the driver, Zamari Ahmadi as he stops at a suspected ISIS safe house and loads the car with explosives before continuing his journey to the airport. But Amadi never reaches his destination. At 4.50 p.m., the order is given, and the Reaper drone launches a Hellfire missile at the vehicle. killing the would-be terrorist and destroying his explosive payload. The media, focused on the conflict in Afghanistan for the first time in years, air live coverage of the Pentagon's announcement. In the waning hours of America's two-decade-long military presence in Afghanistan, another terror threat has been liquidated and more innocent lives have been saved.
6: Yesterday, uh, U.S. military forces uh, conducted and over the horizon counter-terrorism uh, operation uh, against an ISIS-K planner uh, and facilitator. The airstrike occurred in the Nangarhar province of Afghanistan. I can confirm, as more information has come in, that two high-profile ISIS targets were killed and one was wounded. And we know of zero civilian casualties.
1: But as the smoke cleared on the scene of the strike, some grisly truths began to emerge. Ahmadi had not been a terrorist. He was not on his way to set off a suicide bomb at the Kabul airport. The car didn't even have explosives. In reality, Ahmadi had been an aid worker for an American NGO distributing food to malnourished Afghans. He wasn't on his way to the airport. He was arriving home after a day at the office. The suspicious packages that the drone operators had watched him load into his car were in fact water bottles that Ahmadi was bringing home because his neighborhood was dealing with a water shortage. In perhaps the greatest irony, Ahmadi had applied for a special visa to emigrate to the U.S. with his family just days before his death. Now, that family was devastated, torn apart by an explosion that left Ahmadi and nine of his relatives, including a two-year-old, dead. Finally, forced to admit that every part of the drone strike story had been a lie, the Pentagon called it a tragic mistake. And, after a three month self investigation, it was decided that no one involved in that mistake would receive any punishment for killing 10 innocent Afghans. The story of the killing of Zamari Ahmadi is the story of the war on terror in a nutshell. Ahmadi's death was cast as a tragic mistake for which no one was to blame. Just as America's decades long debacle in the Middle East, from the invasion, occupation, and eventual chaotic retreat from Afghanistan, to the illegal invasion of Iraq and the rise of ISIS, to the regime change operations in Libya and Syria, had been a failure of military planning. But when viewed in its proper context, the war on terror was no failure. In fact, waged on fictitious grounds against a shadowy enemy, The great military campaign of the 21st century was not a war on terror at all. It was a war of terror, a pretext for the construction of an international security grid in the name of fighting a boogeyman that never existed in the first place. And by that metric, the war of terror was successful beyond its planners' wildest dreams. in the general public the war on terror was a direct consequence of 9-11 and that war began with george w bush's address to congress on september 20th 2001 our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government
5: that supports them The war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated.
1: Some even believe that the war ended with Barack Obama's declaration of May 23, 2013.
7: beyond Afghanistan, we must define our effort not as a boundless global war on terror, but rather as a series of persistent, targeted efforts to dismantle specific networks of violent extremists that threaten America.
1: As convenient as these statements are for creating bookends for the story of the War on Terror, they do not tell the real story of that war. In fact, the origins of the global War on Terror go back much further than the general public has been led to believe. In 1962, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, led by General Lyman Lemnitzer, issued a startling proposal to President John F. Kennedy on how to get the public on board with military intervention in Cuba to remove Fidel Castro from power. Called Operation Northwoods, the plan suggested a number of staged provocations secretly committed by the U.S. itself, but blamed on Castro, including blowing up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blaming the incident on the Cuban government, staging terror attacks in the United States to be blamed on Cuban terrorists, and even painting up a remote-controlled plane to resemble a passenger jet and destroying it over Cuba. The incredible plan, rejected by Kennedy, who subsequently refused to renew Lemnitzer's term as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was classified and not revealed to the public until 2001, just months before
6: 9-11. The idea was to create a pretext to show that the uh, there, there was an attack by uh, Cuba on the United States, and the idea was to have um, uh, U.S. personnel uh, from the CIA and other places secretly create terrorism in the United States. The documents actually said people would be shot on American streets, bombs would be blown up. Um, And again, all this, the evidence would be uh, laid to point the finger at Castro. Um, One other idea was they were going to they had a very complex plan where they were going to take an aircraft and load it with CIA people look look like college students, fly it over to have it take off from an airport in Miami with a lot of publicity. And then um, it would quickly, after it got into the air, land at a secret uh, CIA base. At that same time, an identical plane would take off from that CIA base. Except this plane would be empty, and it would be remotely piloted from the ground. Uh, It was a drone plane that would be very similar to the passenger plane that had just taken off. And once the uh, plane was over Cuba, there was going to be a tape recorder that would have played a distress call into a microphone saying help were being shot at. And a few minutes later, once the plane was over the uh, Caribbean Sea uh, after it passed over Cuba, it uh, somebody would have pressed a button on the ground, blowing up the plane, and uh, they would have blamed Cuba for killing a plane load of American college students.
1: But even after its rejection... The Northwoods' idea of using spectacular terror attacks as the justification for a wide-scale war continued to be employed by military planners. In November 1998, Philip Zelikow, who would go on to chair the 9-11 Commission, co-wrote an article in Foreign Affairs, the Council on Foreign Relations publication, with Ashton Carter, the future Secretary of Defense under President Obama, and John Deutsch, the former director of the CIA, titled, catastrophic terrorism, tackling the new danger, the article warns of a potential transforming event, such as an attack on the World Trade Center. Like Pearl Harbor, the event would divide our past and future into a before and after. The United States might respond with draconian measures scaling back civil liberties, allowing wider surveillance of citizens, detention of suspects, and use of deadly force. More violence could follow, either future terrorist attacks or U.S. counterattacks. Belatedly, Americans would judge their leaders negligent for not addressing terrorism more urgently. The solution to this impending threat of catastrophic terrorism, Zellico and his co-authors argue, is to take that threat seriously, as the U.S. government did in 1940 when it pondered what kind of forces it would need to wage a global war, and to create new offices for coordinating homeland security and waging preemptive strikes against potential terrorists around the world. Then, unnoticed by much of the public, the global war on terror was first proposed on live TV on the morning of 9-11. At 11.28 a.m. New York time, as the blanket of dust from the freshly exploded towers was still settling on Manhattan and much of the world was still trying to process what was happening, A guest on BBC World News laid out the dawning of the new age of global terror with remarkable foresight. But this prediction was not delivered by a U.S. government official or an American intelligence agent or a Washington Beltway insider. It was delivered by Ehud Barak, the former Prime Minister of Israel.
8: Joining me now here in the BBC World studio is the former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak who is in London at the moment. Mr. Barak, welcome to BBC World. First, your reaction having heard what's happened. At least four planes have been hijacked and uh, there may be more.
9: The world will not be the same from today on. It's an attack uh, against our whole civilization. I don't know who is responsible. I believe we will know in 12 hours. If it is a kind of Bin Laden organization and even if it's something else, I believe that this is the time to deploy a globally concerted effort led by the United States, the UK, Europe and Russia against all sources of terror. The same kind of struggle that our forefathers launched against the piracy uh, on the high seas.
1: In the chaos of September 11th, 2001, Mere minutes after the destruction of the Twin Towers, the global viewing public were presented all the key takeaways of 9-11.
9: That This is the time to deploy a globally concerted effort led by the United States. That The world will not be the same from today on. And, of course, that we Don't know who is responsible. Although We will know in 12 hours
1: but the name immediately implanted in the minds of the audience, not for the first time, nor the last time on that long day of news coverage, was that of Osama bin Laden. In the following days, these takeaways became the talking points for the U.S. government and its allies around the world. Before the day was over, President Bush was already laying the rhetorical groundwork for the coming war, vowing that...
5: And we stand together to win the war against terrorism...
1: By the end of the week, the American public was being prepared for a conflict much bigger than a conventional war.
5: This crusade, this war on terrorism, uh, is going to take a while.
1: And in the following week, Bush confirmed what the public had been told since the moment of the live televised strike on the World Trade Center.
4: We just saw on live television as a second plane flew into the second tower of the World Trade Center. Now, given what has been going on around the world, um, some, of the, some of the key suspects come to mind, Osama bin Laden, who knows, who knows what?
5: Americans are asking, who attacked our country? The evidence we have gathered all points to a collection of loosely affiliated terrorist
1: organizations known as al-Qaeda." By the end of the month, the public had heard so many authoritative pronouncements about the evidence, pointing to bin Laden's responsibility for the 9-11 attacks, that few noticed when the U.S. government declined to release a promised white paper outlining that evidence. A decision prompted by a lack of solid information about the plot according to government sources cited by veteran journalist Seymour Hersh. Instead, the presentation of such evidence was outsourced, as so much of the dirty work in the global war on terror would be, to a third-party nation-state, the United Kingdom. On September 30th, 2001, UK Prime Minister Tony Blair appeared on the BBC's Breakfast with Frost program to declare he had been shown absolutely powerful, incontrovertible evidence of bin Laden's link to the events of the 11th of September, But because the evidence came from sensitive sources, he could not simply reveal it to the public. Rather, the UK government would release a report laying out its case against Osama in great detail. The dossier, titled Responsibility for the Terrorist Atrocities in the United States, was released on October 4th and was touted by the press as the clearest case yet of Osama bin Laden's involvement in the September 11 attacks. The document opens, however, by noting that it does not purport to provide a prosecutable case against Osama bin Laden in a court of law. The first 60 points of the report provide general background information about bin Laden and previous terror attacks attributed to al-Qaeda, and the last 10 points, dealing with Osama bin Laden and the 11th September attacks, are almost incomprehensibly vague. It claims that at least three of the hijackers have been identified as associates of al-Qaeda without listing how this conclusion was arrived at or even who these associates are. It claims that the attack follows the modus operandi of al-Qaeda and is entirely consistent with the planning of previous attacks attributed to the group. And, most remarkably, it states that there is evidence of a very specific nature relating to the guilt of bin Laden and his associates that is too sensitive to release. At almost the exact same time, Momentous events were taking place in Europe, where the North Atlantic Council, NATO's main decision-making body, was receiving a classified briefing from a U.S. State Department operative.
8: This morning, the United States briefed the North Atlantic Council on the results of their investigation into who was responsible for the horrific terrorist attacks which took place on the 11th of September. The briefing was given by Ambassador Frank Taylor, the United States State Department Coordinator on Counterterrorism. The briefing addressed the events of 11th September themselves, the results of the investigation so far, what is known about Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda organisation and their involvement in the attacks and in previous terrorist activity and the links between al-Qaeda and the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. The facts are clear and compelling. The information presented points conclusively to an al-Qaeda role in the 11th of September attacks.
1: This was no ordinary briefing. The result of that briefing was that for the first time in its history, NATO invoked Article 5 of its charter, the self-defense clause that compels the organization to assist any member nation that is attacked by an outside force. By proving that bin Laden had committed the attack in connection with the Taliban, the United States could launch the war on terror and compel NATO to assist in its invasion of Afghanistan.
8: On the basis of this briefing, it has now been determined that the attack against the United States of America on the 11th of September was directed from abroad and shall therefore be regarded as an action covered by Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, which states that an armed attack on one or more of the Allies in Europe or North America shall be considered as an attack against them all. I want to reiterate yet again today that the United States of America can rely on the full support of its 18 NATO Allies in the campaign against international terrorism.
1: Given the stakes involved, questions long swirled around this mysterious classified briefing. What had Ambassador Frank Taylor told the North Atlantic Council that was so compelling? What information persuaded the world's largest and most powerful military alliance to launch an invasion of another nation? The public, it seemed, would never know.
8: Today's was a classified briefing, so I cannot give you all the details. Briefings are also being given directly by the United States to allies in the capitals.
1: But then, in 2009, IntelWire.com quietly posted a document outline under the title Secret Post-9-11 Briefing to World Leaders. The document is a U.S. State Department cable addressed to the American embassies in the NATO countries and American allies around the world under the subject line, September 11, Working Together to Fight the Plague of Global Terrorism and the Case Against Al-Qaeda. The cable is dated October 1, 2001, the day before Ambassador Taylor's meeting with the North Atlantic Council, and instructs its recipients to brief their host country's government on the information linking the Al-Qaeda terrorist network Osama bin Laden, and the Taliban regime to the September 11 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon, and the crash of United Airlines Flight 93. The document went largely unnoticed until 2018, when Professor Niels Herrett wrote an article The Mysterious Frank Taylor Report, the 9-11 document that launched U.S.-NATO's war on terrorism in the Middle East, connecting the dots between this document and the briefing that Ambassador Taylor gave to the North Atlantic Council this
10: is in my mind with no doubt simply the legal basis for 18 years of perpetual war in the middle east this is the basis for for nato's activation of article 5 and uh, and so what is in the document what is the evidence What is the evidence which Lord Robertson calls clear and compelling? None. There's absolutely no evidence in that paper.
1: Much like the UK government dossier, the State Department cable contains no actual evidence of a link between bin Laden and the 9-11 attacks. In fact, the cable is virtually identical to the UK report. After spending a full 15 pages talking in generalities about terror about the U.S. government's officially sanctioned history of al-Qaeda and of previous attacks attributed to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, the document finally arrives at Part 3, purporting to demonstrate al-Qaeda's involvement in the attacks. But Part 3 begins by admitting that the investigation into the attacks is still in the early stage and that there are still gaps in our knowledge. It then goes on to detail circumstantial evidence, including the observation that Bin Laden and his associates seemed to be anticipating what we could only identify as an important event or activity. Finally, the document talks about how the incident is tactically similar to earlier attacks because it involved planning and a desire to inflict mass casualties. And with that complete lack of evidence, the war on terror was launched and the invasion of Afghanistan began.
5: On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps in Afghanistan.
3: The night sky over Afghanistan lights up with thunderous explosions.
10: The U.S. and a broad coalition of countries against terrorism in general.
0: The most immediate objective, to hunt down and root out Osama bin Laden and his
1: terrorist cells. And so, in October 2001, the bombs began dropping on Afghanistan. The War of Terror had officially begun, and the public was told that one of the key objectives of that war was to kill or capture Osama bin Laden. Mr.
8: want
5: bin Laden dead? I want him, help. I, want, I want justice. And uh, uh, there's an old poster out west, as I recall, that said, wanted, dead or alive.
1: But as we have seen, one of the defining hallmarks of al-Qaeda throughout its reign of terror was its agent's uncanny ability to cross borders illegally, evade capture repeatedly, and generally slip through intelligence agency dragnets unimpeded. This remarkable string of good luck included the blind sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who entered the U.S. with CIA support and lived there unmolested even after his green card was revoked. World Trade Center bomber Ramzi Youssef, who entered the U.S. without the proper paperwork, working and living with a suspected terror ring that was under FBI surveillance and fleeing the country before he was even a person of interest in the WTC investigation. Khalid Al-Maidar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi, whose entry to the U.S. from an al-Qaeda summit in Malaysia was known about and actively covered up by the CIA, and who lived openly in the United States under their real names for over a year, Repeatedly calling the Al Qaeda communications hub in Yemen that was being monitored by the NSA. And, most infamously, Al Qaeda triple agent Ali Mohammed, whose career as an Egyptian army officer, a failed CIA asset, a trusted aide to Al Qaeda second in command Ayman al Zawahiri, a U.S. Special Forces training officer, a volunteer fighter in Afghanistan, an FBI deep cover asset, Osama bin Laden's personal bodyguard, And the trainer of many of Al Qaeda's terrorists throughout the 1990s is so improbable that it is generally ignored in most histories of Al Qaeda. As incredible as all of those stories are, however, they pale in comparison to the story that was about to unfold the disappearance of Osama bin Laden, ostensibly the most wanted man on the planet, from under the noses of the American military and intelligence services. Osama bin Laden's remarkable post-9-11 disappearance actually began on 9-11 itself, when his whereabouts were not a mystery to America or its allies in the region. In fact, his location and activities on the night before 9-11 were well known to the U.S., although that information would not be revealed to the public until after his escape. Everyone remembers what happened on September
4: 11th. Here's the story of what may have happened the night before. It is a tale as twisted as the hunt for Osama bin Laden. CBS News has been told that the night before the September 11th terrorist attack, Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan. He was getting medical treatment with the support of the very military that days later pledged its backing for the U.S. war on terror in Afghanistan. Pakistan intelligence sources tell CBS News that bin Laden was
1: spirited into this military hospital in Rawapendi for kidney dialysis treatment. Despite knowing bin Laden's precise location and activities right up to the moment of 9-11, however, and despite the fact that the Al-Qaeda leader was already a wanted fugitive subject to international arrest warrants and under indictment by a U.S. federal court, bin Laden continued to move around internationally with the full knowledge and complicity of state intelligence services. And as remarkable as this may seem, bin Laden's trip to Rawalpindi on the eve of 9-11 was neither the first nor the last time that the U.S. would allow him to evade capture. In the weeks after the attack, the Taliban offered to try Bin Laden in Afghanistan or even hand him over to a third-party country if the U.S. provided them with the same proof of Bin Laden's guilt for 9-11 that Ambassador Taylor had supposedly provided NATO. Bush turned the offer down. Then, after the invasion of Afghanistan began in October, the Taliban again tried to hand bin Laden over, this time dropping the request for proof of his guilt. Bush again refused. The War of Terror, it turned out, was not about getting Osama. In fact, if bin Laden had been captured or killed, it would have derailed the carefully laid plans for the Bush administration's aggressive new foreign policy. But, having been sold on the simplified version of the War on Terror the one that held the objective of that war was to kill or capture Osama bin Laden and to liquidate the al-Qaeda network, the public believed that the fighting would be short and decisive, like the First Gulf War. After all, how hard would it be for the army of the world's unrivaled military superpower, employing the tools of the most high-tech intelligence community in history to capture a lone fighter on dialysis in the caves of Tora Bora? Bush administration officials were quick to temper the public's expectations on this point. This was no ordinary elderly man living in an undefended cave, after all. This was a comic book supervillain, an evil millionaire mastermind directing a terrorist army from his elaborate cave fortress.
10: There was constant discussion about him hiding out in caves, and I think many times the American people have a perception that it's a little hole dug out of the side of a mountain. Oh, no. This is it. This is a fortress, Yes. a complex, multi-tiered, bedrooms and offices on the top, as you can see. Secret exits on the side and, the en- and on the bottom, cut deep to avoid thermal detection, a ventilation system to allow people to breathe and to carry on. The entrance is large enough to drive trucks and even tanks, even computer systems and telephone systems. It's a very sophisticated
7: operation. Oh, you bet. This is serious business. And, and there's not one of those. There are many of those.
1: This was a lie, of course. There were no high-tech cave fortresses, no multi-tiered bedrooms and offices on the top, no secret exits on the side, no ventilation systems or computer systems. It was a fabrication, a literal artist's rendering with as much reality as that of a comic book or a cartoon. But, as an unfolding drama for the public following the war on their television sets half a world away... This story had enough twists and turns to keep any audience engaged. The first phase of the war went as predicted. By November, America's relentless bombing had already routed the Taliban, driving them from Kabul toward Kunduz in the north. There, the trapped fighters, including not only Taliban but Al-Qaeda members, as well as Pakistani army officers, intelligence advisors and volunteers, were saved from certain defeat by a miracle the arrival of a squadron of Pakistani aircraft that flew in and airlifted them back to Pakistan. It was later confirmed that the operation, dubbed the Airlift of Evil, was signed off on by the Bush administration, who had cut a secret deal with Pakistani President Musharraf to let the fighters escape, and who ordered the United States Central Command to set up a special air corridor to help ensure the safety of the Pakistani rescue flights. But what about Osama bin Laden, as it turns out, his whereabouts were no great mystery to American forces, and, once again, he was allowed to escape. On the eve of the invasion of Afghanistan in October, The Guardian reported that Osama bin Laden was in Kabul last week, and U.S. and British intelligence agencies have a pretty good idea where he is now, suggesting that Western intelligence has a much clearer picture of bin Laden's recent movements than has been admitted. The report went on to note that bin Laden's capture or death would reduce the pressure for wider military action against Afghanistan. But this intelligence did not lead to bin Laden's apprehension. As American forces honed in on Kabul in early November, bin Laden and all of his closest advisors managed to escape to Jalalabad in a very conspicuous late-night convoy. One eyewitness reported... We don't understand how they weren't all killed the night before, because they came in a convoy of at least 1,000 cars and trucks. It was a very dark night, but it must have been easy for American pilots to see the headlights. On November 13th, just one day before the Northern Alliance captured Jalalabad, bin Laden escaped once again, this time in a convoy of several hundred cars. Despite believing bin Laden to be in one of the vehicles, U.S. forces opted to ignore the convoy and instead bombed the nearby Jalalabad airport. Bin Laden and his men, now numbering a few hundred fighters, arrived in mid-November at the mountainous Khyber Pass on the border of Pakistan. On November 15th, with the remaining al-Qaeda and Taliban holdouts pinned down in the caves of Tora Bora, the U.S. military was in a position to eliminate the al-Qaeda threat, kill Osama bin Laden, and end the war on terror. But, remarkably... The Marines, special forces, and CIA operatives who were positioned and ready to do this were blocked from doing so by their own superiors. That winter, the CIA was still at war. The Taliban
4: had fallen. Now it was Osama bin Laden's turn. I'm looking
7: for bin Laden right away. I want to start killing him and his people immediately. We had intelligence that continued to develop, that bin Laden and Zawahiri were in Afghanistan, probably in the eastern areas, hiding out there.
3: The CIA tried to put together a team to chase
4: bin Laden. It wasn't easy. I asked uh, army special forces if they'll send people in. They say, no, we're not going down there. It's not stable. You don't have a reliable ally. The conditions for al-Qaeda's retreat were quite favorable. And the United States did not do the one thing that the Pentagon had within its power to do, which was to move regular U.S. troops into
1: a blocking position behind these mountains. The story, exhaustively documented by CIA operatives, special forces operators, journalists, and even a U.S. Senate report, is clear and unambiguous. As the U.S. Senate report notes, By early December 2001, bin Laden's world had shrunk to a complex of caves and tunnels carved into a mountainous section of eastern Afghanistan known as Tora Bora. Both the CIA and Delta Force, the US Army's elite special operations unit, had tracked bin Laden from Jalalabad to Tora Bora. They had real-time eavesdropping capabilities on al-Qaeda almost from their arrival, allowing them to track movements and gauge the effectiveness of the bombing and were able to pick up radio communications featuring bin Laden directly issuing commands to his troops. They had him surrounded on three sides, and the relentless airstrikes, including the use of a 15,000-pound daisy-cutter not used since Vietnam, were decimating what was left of bin Laden's forces. All that was needed was to secure the mountain pass leading out of Tora Bora and into Pakistan. Gary Burnson the head of the CIA's paramilitary operation against the Taliban and al-Qaeda, knew that the Afghan militias that the U.S. had cobbled together were not up to the job of securing the pass. From mid-November to mid-December, he repeatedly begged his superiors for one battalion of U.S. Army Rangers, just 800 troops, to help stop bin Laden from slipping away. As the U.S. Senate later noted, fulfilling Bernstein's request would have been a manageable task. In late November, about the time U.S. intelligence placed Bin Laden squarely at Tora Bora, more than 1,000 members of the 15th and 26th Marine Expeditionary Units, among the military's most mobile arms, established a base southwest of Kandahar, only a few hours' flight away. Another 1,000 troops from the Army's 10th Mountain Division were split between a base in southern Uzbekistan and Bagram Air Base, a short helicopter flight from Tora Bora. General James Mattis, the commander of the marines at Kandahar, told a journalist that his troops could seal off Tora Bora, but his superiors rejected the plan. Berntzen fared no better in his quest to obtain 800 army rangers for the mission. Not only was his request rejected, but, remarkably, in the middle of the most important battle of the war, he was replaced as head of the CIA force in Afghanistan, effective immediately. His replacement was to be Rich Blee, the same CIA bin Laden unit chief who had helped conceal the information about al-Maidar and al-Hazmi's entry to the U.S. from the FBI. Blee was accompanied to Afghanistan by Michael Ann Casey, the bin Laden unit staffer who had actually stopped Doug Miller from sharing that info with the FBI. At first, Bernson was told that his request was denied because it might alienate our Afghan allies. I don't give a damn about alienating our allies, he replied. I only care about eliminating al-Qaeda and delivering bin Laden's head in a box. Later, though, a different story emerged. As it turns out, at the exact same time that bin Laden was holed up in Tora Bora, U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld ordered General Tommy Franks, who was leading the Afghan invasion, to redirect planning resources from Afghanistan to the Pentagon's next target in the War of Terror, Iraq. As even the official story of the war on terror acknowledges, bin Laden and his top aides, seizing their opportunity, simply walked out of Tora Bora and into Pakistan. And, just like that, the boogeyman of the war on terror was gone, allowed to escape yet again. He would reappear from time to time to continue reminding the public about the origins of the terror war. But now, the public's attention was being turned to a new boogeyman.
10: Mr. President, in your speeches now, you rarely
5: talk
6: or mention
0: Osama. We're going to take a little pause here and address a couple of the important points. Uh, I just just since we stopped, I just want to say this is really outstanding so far. And I really like the tone uh, that I mean, as you know, your work is always showing the reality, but it's it's. Taking a tone which we should be taking today, which it's this is clear. You know what I mean? Like the evidence is leading in a very obvious direction. It's not it's unequivocal, you know. So just go ahead. If you guys have some points you want to make, I think this is great so far.
1: Yeah, I I must admit I did uh cop that idea or that phrase or that terminology from Lord Robertson, uh the NATO uh uh, commander there, who um said at the time the evidence is clear and compelling, and that phrase just sticks like a cry in my side because Yeah. Clear and compelling. And then when you actually see the evidence they were looking at, literally nothing. Truly, literally nothing. Well, this is this looks like the type of terror attacks that we know Al Qaeda has done in the past. Asterisk C part two, if you want more information about that. But yeah. Oh, therefore, this was Al Qaeda. (laughs) I mean, it's just it's transparent nonsense. And that's precisely why that briefing was classified. And the Mm -hmm. details were never Um, given to the public openly, they were leaked through IntelWire.com in 2009. And we finally found out, oh, yeah, it was nothing. But at the time, I bet you, you know, 99.9% of the public on the planet, including myself. Well, you know, sounds compelling, clear and compelling. So yeah, thank you for picking up on that. That's, -hmm. that's a phrase that definitely stuck, uh, was stuck in my head as I was writing this. And I wanted to throw it back in their face because actually the evidence is clear and compelling that this is a total transparent sham.
0: Right. I just, I, since you said that point, I'm the first thing that pops into my mind and I've got a few things that I, we, you know, talk about now or relate to the end, but the Bethlehem doctrine, Right. The same thing that the Israeli government uses that the U.K., even though it's kind of supposed to be secret in the U.S., but they're the three primary that use this idea. For those who don't know, essentially means that if we believe that there's some kind of a threat, whether we can prove it or not, just the indication that it's something they may have done before, exactly like that, they can preemptive self-defense attack. So do you think that that was already playing a role right there? Just your opinion?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there was... There was only the the most transparent fig leaf of an attempt to make any sort of cover for this. It was really just the legal excuse for doing what they were going to do anyway. And again, anyone who was involved in this process probably understood that. But the, for the general public, they're just being told what to think by the talking heads. I mean, who who in the general public even followed? Oh, the Atl- you know, the North Atlantic Council is meeting today. I wonder what they discussed. I mean, it's not like anyone in the general public even knows about that type, type of level of detail, let alone the details of the classified briefings that we're not allowed to know about. But yeah, absolutely. They have just general doctrine of, okay, we need this sort of carte blanche. So what can we do? Oh, we'll just hold some meeting, say it's classified and say that justifies everything.
0: And that's the point I'll add to that too, just to clarify, I'm not suggesting like that they will literally make up even that flimsy excuse to then argue that they, you know, that's the crazy part about it. There's nothing sacred, apparently. And the whole NATO tie-in with Article 5 and it just kind of begins like the world army for like budding world government. I mean, it, which never really went away. It's just all based on literally nothing. It's mind-blowing. But uh, you guys had some questions you wanted to address or you wanted to, to address a couple of things?
2: Yeah, just one point, And this relates perfectly to the to Robinson's clear and compelling evidence, James the the Rumsfeld cave fortress image. <laughs> now, during the, that was that's a live broadcast, from Meet the Press, I believe it was of Tim, Tim Russert, and um, that is the that is the image that the the administration was running with. That there is this gigantic ventilated, air conditioned, five star, Michelin star restaurant in there that, that Bin Laden was supposedly um, holding out in in Tora Bora, James, if I remember correctly. You actually source where that where that image came from. Was it in London somewhere? The UK based oracle? Uh
1: yes, it was from a newspaper. I don't remember which one. I I, I don't remember if it said on screen on that Meet the Press. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, I believe it was the Times, but I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, it was a London or a UK paper.
2: Yeah. So I mean that's and that's what they were running with, you know, like just, yeah. just another example. I, yeah. Now
1: to be clear you created that comic book. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I was thinking I, I love that uh, way. concoction. <laughs> but yes, they created the actual <laughs> image that they showed on Meet the Press there, which has always uh, you know, there are there are the little different things that stick out in people's minds as the, as something that they just always knew was just nonsense. Uh, the passport being magically discovered in the dust of you know ground zero and that kind of stuff. But for me, this is one of those things like from I've never been able to look at that clip and not just think that is just how how could they even try to pass that off as being real?
0: I really did like the comic book part of it, though, you know, because it, it's it's just kind of puts it in the right framing. I think it's exact. I mean, but that's the crazy part about this, that all these are showing is that these are I mean, just taking the 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 uh, the Article 5 document we're discussing there that led to Article 5. That's one of those points where that argument people make, like, how could, how could so many people know and not speak out? Well, that's a good point right there. there. That kind of shows you that it is bigger than just some top-down thing. There's a lot of people that had to know that there was nothing there and just chose not to speak about it. Sort of like kind of the COVID thing we're seeing today. You know, it's very weird.
2: If I recall correctly, oh, sorry, sorry, James, no, um, if, I, if, I, if I recall correctly, they were dangling Article 5 at the beginning of the uh, Russian-Ukraine war as well, if I remember correctly. They're oh, right? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's
1: always the specter there and and yeah. that's precisely i mean that's that's a heart the heart of the issue in some sense. The more that you have these peripheral Eastern European states that are now part of NATO, the more likely it is that some sort of action will be interpreted as some sort of attack on them. It was also dangled even during the Syria conflict. I talked about it at the time with um Turkey. Of course, NATO member Turkey right there on the doorstep. And, and there was there was some uh, staged attacks that, were, that Turkey was trying to say, hey, looks like the Syrian, those Kurdish terrorists are trying to get us, and they're in Syria, so NATO boots on the ground in Syria. And that, that was dangled there for a long time, and still, at a moment's notice, it could be. The next false flag event could be right around the corner, anywhere in any NATO country, that they could then blame on whoever they want at any time, give a classified briefing behind closed doors that you'll never know about. Well, we were convinced. So now we're at war. Right. And that's it. And as a Canadian, so this is my perspective on it as a Canadian. Uh, I, this is this is my entree into this, because, you know, obviously a lot of this centering around the United States and the attack in New York and Washington and blah, blah, blah. But as a Canadian, suddenly Canada's involved in marching off to war in Afghanistan. We've got troops on the ground why what did what what's happening here why are we what's going on here oh it's because of this clear and compelling yeah. evidence Australia as well yeah.
0: now just quick question you guys might know do would they even need to initiate article 5 again as far as i understand it that never really went away right i mean that's still happening the war on terror so what they, they arguably wouldn't even need to initiate another justification would they
1: now My yeah, I'll I'll have to I'll have to do the deep dive on this and maybe I can follow up on this. But I would say I I believe the invocation of Article 5 was specifically about Osama bin Laden being protected by the Taliban in Afghanistan. So I believe it was specifically for the Afghanistan operation in that particular occasion. Hmm. The authorization for use of military force was the legislation that was passed in the US Congress in the immediate wake of 9/11 that was the carte blanche for the entire US right. war on terror that's to this day continues to be applied and and used in whatever way whatever administration comes along wants to use it they can just extend it because it really was this carte blanche anything that the president deems is part of this fight against this terrorist enemy that's you know not defined they can do. So I mean, Somalia or wherever they can say it's part of the authorization for use of military force. So the US government literally has this blank check that they can do absolutely anything in the name of this. NATO, from my understanding, I believe Article 5 invocation was specifically about Afghanistan.
0: I'm glad you brought that up that's a great point and you're right I if I'm, now that I'm remembering that's the discu- that's the legislation that brought as you just made clear broadly says basically ISIS al-Qaeda or any affiliated associated and that becomes whatever they want it to be that's 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 I'm glad we brought that up that's it just shows you this pay- I mean we need to see how this translates today and I think you guys mentioned the next false flag Ukraine it doesn't necessarily have the trappings of like the way it began as like, as a usual false flag, but there's all the same kind of things that we're seeing there. It might as well. Remember,
1: remember they were warning Russia is going to commit a false flag. Remember that was part of the lead up to all of this. And so now uh, it it is strange, but now that this gets seeded in the public consciousness and more people are aware of it, I don't think they can do a straightforward what they did in the past. Now they have to take into account that the public is at least aware of the concept of false flag terrorism, which I've always posited as one of the wins, as it were, of the 9-11 truth movement and things that we're doing, um, is that we have brought this to public attention. Because I remember back 15 years ago when I started the Corbett report, it was still the most common question when you tried to bring up the idea of 9-11 truth to anyone. Why would the government attack itself? It was this Like it was unimaginable, like that Mm -hmm. people couldn't conceive of why this would even take place. Now, I think more and more people are at least aware of what the strategy might be involved. So I think they have to take that into account. So they'll do things like, warn. I think Russia is going to stage some sort of attack. And then if the attack happens, they can say, see, we told you Mm -hmm. Russia was going to do it.
0: Right, right. Great point. Well, I, I only had a couple other comments that I wanted to make, unless you guys had any other questions you want to put it, you know, add. There
1: was another question that I saw in the GooTube chat, um, but it relates specifically to the uh, the Bin Laden compound raid and, and that thing, which we're going to get to, obviously, later on in the documentary. So we'll cover it when we get there. But Cotton-Headed Ninny Muggins, just know that your question will be answered. <laughs> also, for Cotton-Headed Ninny Muggins and any other GooTube users out there, please get off YouTube and please watch this on another platform. But yes, yes. your question will be answered. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And we, and like we said in the beginning, make sure that you hold them to the end and we'll po- post them in the different mediums and we'll, we'll bring them over. But I just thought it was really interesting. The, the, some of the things that like that I'm not even make that I'm not even sure I was necessarily fully aware of the things like uh, Bush twice refusing to take bin laden i mean that's crazy to think about like how do you even rationalize that and if you guys know is there any kind of a justification for that now that it's known
1: uh yes i mean it was widely reported at the time it was essentially we we don't negotiate with terrorists that sort of thing and as we are right about to see as we're just getting into right now maybe back it up a few seconds um we are getting into the point where they start pivoting it's not about osama bin laden guys don't focus on this guy it's about terror like iraq Right. So that's exactly where we're heading now. Interesting.
0: Well, the last one I had was just simply that, you know, what was the excuse? Same kind of point. What was the justification, if any, that they gave for removing the CIA head of Afghanistan?
9: Oh,
1: right. Yeah. So the whole Burnson thing. Um, What was the justification? I I literally I've just reread Jawbreaker recently. Um, What was he told about why he was being removed? I can't remember what the justification was. It was obviously nonsense because Mm -hmm. quite specifically, who did they replace him with? Richard Blee. Mm. He's the new guy coming into Kabul right here in the midst of this, you know, incredibly important operation that could be the end of the war of terror, but it certainly was not. And who did he bring with him? Michael and Casey. And for people who were studying part two, And remember, these are the exact same people in the uh, bin Laden unit, Alex Station at CIA in Langley, who were the ones who literally stopped, actually stopped the information about uh, uh, Al-Maidar and Al-Hazmi from going to the FBI or anyone else that could have conceivably done anything about that information. They actively stopped that information from going as it normally would have done. Um, and we know that the the document signed, sealed, delivered. We know that these people were involved in that. And then they get posted over to Afghanistan where they start, they come in and bin Laden gets away. Wow. Imagine that. Uh, it, it's, it's such a rich tapestry as James M. of medium Monarchy would say.
2: In the words of Richard Clark, it would have had to have come from the CIA director, right?
1: That's what he said.
2: That's what he right. said
0: i mean just all these the dialysis and the, you know the, the whole story it's just it's such a flimsy ridiculous dumpster fire of lies and it's so obvious that i'm so i'm just you know thank you it again gets worse this.
1: let's let's, let's yeah. get back to the show all right and we'll see more Jumping it in why
5: yeah.
10: is that also can you tell the american people if you have any more information if you know if he is dead or alive mm-hmm. final part here. Yeah. Deep in
7: your heart, don't you truly believe that until you find out if he is dead or alive, you won't really eliminate the
5: threat of... Deep in my heart, I know the man's on the run if he's alive at all. And uh, I, I, uh, you know, who knows if he's hiding in some cave or not. Uh, We hadn't heard from him in a long time. And the idea of focusing on one person uh, is um, really uh, indicates to me people don't understand the... Scope of the mission. Uh, terror is bigger than one person, and uh, he, he's just—he's—he's a—he's a person who's now been marginalized. Um, his network is uh, his the, his host government has been destroyed. Um, he's the ultimate parasite, who found weakness, exploited it, and uh, uh, met his match. Uh, he is. uh... You know, as I mentioned in my speeches, I do mention the fact that this is a fellow who is willing to commit youngsters to their death, and he himself tries to hide if, in fact, he's hiding at all. So I, I don't know where he is. Nor, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him, Kelly, to be honest with you. Some have argued that confronting the threat from Iraq could detract from the war against terror. To the contrary, confronting the threat posed by Iraq is crucial to winning the war on terror.
1: That the Bush administration would pivot so quickly from hunting Osama bin Laden to toppling Saddam Hussein was only surprising to those who did not know the neocons populating the Bush administration or their well-documented and long-held desire to affect regime change in Iraq. In 1996, a group of prominent neoconservatives, including Richard Pearl, Douglas Feith, and David Wormser, wrote a report for then-Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, titled, A Clean Break! a new strategy for securing the realm, the report urged Israel to shape its strategic environment by weakening, containing, and even rolling back Syria. The way to do this, the report concluded, was to focus on removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq, an important Israeli strategic objective in its own right, as a means of foiling Syria's regional ambitions. In 1997, 25 prominent neocons, including 10 who would go on to serve in the Bush administration, and even Jeb Bush, the future president's brother, signed a statement of principles as the founding charter of a new think tank called the Project for the New American Century. The statement called on then-President Clinton to reverse the defense spending cuts that marked the post-Cold War era and to increase defense spending significantly. In 1998, the group followed up with an open letter to Clinton urging him to turn your administration's attention to implementing a strategy for removing Saddam's regime from power. Surrounding himself with neocons on the campaign trail and eventually installing those neocons in all of the key security positions in his cabinet, President George W. Bush wasted no time in making these regime change dreams a reality. As Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill later revealed, at his first major National Security Council meeting, held just 10 days into the new administration, President Bush tasked Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Hugh Shelton to begin preparing options for the use of U.S. ground forces in the northern and southern no-fly zones in Iraq to support an insurgency to bring down the Saddam regime. The second National Security Council meeting of the Bush administration, held two days later, also discussed regime change in Iraq, with one briefing document at the meeting marked secret and bearing the title, Plan for Post-Saddam Iraq.
8: From the
6: very first instance, it was about Iraq. It was about what we can do uh, to change this regime.
4: Now, Everybody else thought that grew out of 9-11. No. But this book says it was day one of this administration. Day
6: one, these things were laid uh, and sealed.
1: And, infamously, on the day of 9-11 itself, the administration was already beginning plans for a retaliatory strike not just on bin Laden in Afghanistan, but on Iraq. A note taken at 2.40 p.m. on September 11, 2001, records Rumsfeld saying he wanted, best info fast, judge whether good enough to hit Saddam Hussein at the same time, not only bin Laden. He made sure to order staff to go massive and sweep it all up, including things related and not. From before Bush even got into office, there was no doubt that he would attack Iraq. 9-11 9-11 and the war on terror merely presented the neocons with the perfect opportunity to fulfill that agenda. The only problem was how to tie Iraq into the war on terror in the minds of the public, a problem that Bush himself admitted to.
5: It's, uh, you know, one of the hardest parts of my job is to connect Iraq to the war on terror. Of course we're after uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, I mean, uh, bin Laden, he's, 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 he's isolated.
1: The job of connecting the public face of the war on terror, bin Laden and al-Qaeda, to Saddam and Iraq was made more difficult by the fact that there was no such connection. Difficult, but not impossible for a committed cadre with no qualms about using mendacity to achieve their political objectives. The most direct link between al-Qaeda and Iraq was a trip that alleged 9-11 hijacker Mohammed Atta was reported to have made to the Iraqi consulate in Prague in April 2001, After Atta's pictures were published in the media in the wake of 9-11, a Middle East informant told Czech intelligence that he had seen Atta meeting with a suspected Iraqi intelligence agent in the Czech Republic that spring. The story became even more salacious when, at the height of the anthrax scare in October 2001, anonymous Israeli intelligence sources planted a story in the German media that Atta had in fact received anthrax spores from his Iraqi contact in Prague. But the entire story was such a preposterous lie that it was quickly disowned by both the FBI and the CIA. Investigators found there was no evidence Atta left or returned to the U.S. during that time frame and pointed to other evidence, including Atta's cell phone records, to cast doubt on the idea that any meeting had occurred. And, despite the fantastical, anonymous, evidence-free reports in German media, the anthrax used in the anthrax attacks on America in the fall of 2001 did not source from Iraq, but from the U.S. military's own bioweapons laboratory. None of this stopped Vice President Dick Cheney from repeating the lie in his media appearances in the run-up to the Iraq war, however.
10: We've seen in, in connection with uh, uh, the hijackers, of course, Mohammed Atta, who was the uh, lead hijacker, uh, did apparently travel to Prague on a number of occasions. And on at least one occasion, we have reporting that places him in Prague with uh, a senior Iraqi intelligence official a few months before the attack on the World Trade Center.
1: The story of Iraqi agents handing flasks of anthrax to 9-11 hijackers was a little too fanciful even for the credulous American public, however, and it was soon dropped from the neocon sales pitch for the Iraq War. Instead, a different set of lies would need to be found to sell the public on the illegal invasion of a sovereign nation. On January 31st, 2003, six months after senior British intelligence complained behind closed doors that the facts were being fixed around the policy of invading Iraq, Bush met with British Prime Minister Tony Blair at the White House for a discussion on the matter. As a now infamous memo documenting the meeting records, Bush had already decided on military action and a start date for the bombing of March 10th was now penciled in. Given that it was unlikely that the UN would pass a resolution authorizing the invasion, absent some compelling incident, Bush suggested a way that Iraq could be provoked into aggressive action. According to the memo, the U.S. was thinking of flying U-2 reconnaissance aircraft with fighter cover over Iraq, painted in UN colors. If Saddam fired on them, he would be in breach of existing UN resolutions, thus justifying military action. The stunning and documented admission that President Bush had suggested staging a false flag event as one option for provoking a war received some press attention at the time, but has since largely been forgotten. After all, they did not need to get Iraq to shoot down a spy plane. The neocons had hit on a different strategy for selling the war to the public.
5: If the Iraqi regime wishes peace, it will immediately and unconditionally force disclose and remove or destroy all
10: weapons of mass destruction one of the most worrisome things that emerges from the thick intelligence file we have on iraq's biological weapons is the existence of mobile production facilities used to make biological agents he now uh, is trying through his illicit procurement network to acquire the Uh, equipment, he needs to be able to enrich uranium. aluminum tubes. Specifically aluminum tubes. There's a story in the New York Times this morning.
6: The problem here is that there will always be some uncertainty about uh, how quickly he can acquire a nuclear weapon. But we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud.
10: As these drawings based on their description show, we know what the fermenters look like. We know what the tanks, pumps, compressors, and other parts look like. We know how they fit together, we know how they work, and we know a great deal about the platforms on which they are mounted.
5: And my message to Saddam Hussein is that for the sake of peace, for the sake of freedom, you must disarm like you said you would do. But my message to you all and to the country is this, for the sake of our future freedoms and for the sake of world peace, if the United Nations can't act, And if Saddam Hussein won't act, the United States will lead a coalition of nations to disarm Saddam Hussein."
1: As decades of after-the-fact journalism has exhaustively documented, every aspect of the weapons of mass destruction story was a transparent and admitted lie. But it was a remarkably successful lie. Six months into the Iraq War, a stunning 82% of the American public believed that Saddam Hussein had provided assistance to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, and 69% believed that Saddam was personally involved in the September 11th attacks. As the months wore on, however, it became harder to hide the fact that the mythical WMD stashes and mobile weapons labs and aluminum tubes that the public had been assured were keys to the imminent threat posed by Saddam's regime simply weren't there. Even the corporate press that had worked so hard to sell these lies to the public had to start pointing out the obvious. The Bush administration had lied in order to sell an illegal invasion of a sovereign country to the American public and to the people of the world the neocons realized that a renewed effort was going to be needed to connect Iraq to the war on terror in order to keep the public on board with the war as the invasion of Iraq morphed into the occupation of Iraq. And, as always, the al-Qaeda threat would serve the purpose of terrifying the public into rallying once again behind their government. The fact that Iraq and al-Qaeda were mortal enemies might have been an insurmountable obstacle to anyone concerned with the truth, but these were neocons, Their logic was simple. If the Al-Qaeda boogeyman didn't exist in Iraq, they would have to create it. So that's exactly what they did.
10: And now to Iraq, where a series of suicide bombings ripped through the country again today, killing at least 48 people.
3: Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's Al-Qaeda offshoot claimed responsibility.
4: United States this morning is promising to help Iraq fight off a new Al Qaeda offensive.
1: Founded in Jordan in 1999, even the official history of the terrorist organization that became known as Al Qaeda in Iraq acknowledges that the group originally had nothing to do with either Al Qaeda or Iraq. Instead, its founder Ahmed al Kalayla was a Jordanian militant whose terror cell, Jamaat al Tawid Wal Jihad or Congregation of Monotheism and Jihad, was dedicated to the overthrow of the Jordanian monarchy. Like many of the figures in the Al-Qaeda story, the biography of Al-Khalayla is not that of a devout Muslim, let alone a dedicated jihadi. A high school dropout, al was known for drunken brawls and drug dealing, and was jailed for sexual assault before going to Afghanistan to join the Mujahideen in 1989, just as the Soviets were leaving. From there... The story of this soon-to-be-feared terrorist leader tells us he returned to Jordan a few years later, founded a terror cell known as Jund al-Sham that attracted the attention of the authorities, and was sent to prison in 1992, where he adopted more radical Islamic beliefs. After his release from Jordanian prison in 1999, he immediately became involved in a new plot to bomb the Radisson SAS Hotel in Amman and several tourist sites in Jordan just before New Year's Day 2000. The plot was foiled and Al-Khalayla fled through Pakistan to Afghanistan, where, we are told, he met with bin Laden and other al-Qaeda leaders, with whose assistance he set up a terrorist training camp for Jordanian militants in Herat. Joining the resistance to the U.S. invasion after 9-11 and adopting the nom de guerre Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, he fled to Iran in January 2002. His whereabouts and activities during 2002 are difficult to pin down, Western and Arab intelligence agencies assured the Washington Post that, despite being a known terror operative and wanted by numerous governments, Zarqawi, like many other al-Qaeda figures, moved frequently and with relative ease among Iran, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq, expanding his network. Then, in 2003, still a relative unknown even within the world of militant jihad, Zarqawi turned up in Baghdad, where he was catapulted to international infamy not by his actions nor by the promotion of Osama bin Laden or other jihadis, but by the U.S. government.
10: But what I want to bring to your attention today is the potentially much more sinister nexus between Iraq and the al-Qaeda terrorist network, a nexus that combines classic terrorist organizations and modern methods of murder. Iraq today harbors a deadly terrorist network headed by Abu Musab al Zakawi an associate and collaborator of Osama bin Laden and his al-Qaeda lieutenants.
1: The remarks, delivered during Colin Powell's infamous speech justifying the forthcoming invasion of Iraq to the UN Security Council in February of 2003, were, like most of the specific accusations in the address, demonstrably false. Zarqawi was a relative nobody in Iraq at the time. The CIA later admitted there was no evidence that Hussein had been harboring him and his group was not, in fact, affiliated with al-Qaeda when Powell made his speech. Nevertheless, these falsehoods started to become true after the spotlight of attention was showered on Zarqawi by the US State Department. Attacks attributed to or claimed by Zarqawi were relatively few, but received inordinate amounts of attention from the international press. These attacks were often designed to inflame Shia-Sunni hatred, thus turning resistance to the occupation into a full-on sectarian conflict that tore the country to its roots. And in 2004, Zarqawi, who, we are told, calculated that attaching the al-Qaeda brand name to his group would give it more cachet in the jihadi world, pledged his allegiance to Osama bin Laden and received the al-Qaeda title Emir of Al-Qaeda in the Country of Two Rivers. The specter of al-Qaeda in Iraq just another cynical and calculated lie when used by Powell to justify the Iraq invasion, had become a reality. What resulted from this U.S. government-promoted character was a career so remarkable that it could only be believed in a Hollywood action movie or a history of al-Qaeda. In 2004, after being allegedly caught and freed by Iraqi security forces in the Fallujah area because they didn't realize who he was... Zarqawi was then reportedly killed in an American bombing raid in northern Iraq in March, before pledging his allegiance to Osama and officially joining al-Qaeda in October. In 2005, Zarqawi was, according to various sources, arrested in Bakuba in January, left seriously injured possibly dead after a U.S.-led offensive in May, evacuated to a neighboring country with the help of doctors from the Arab Peninsula and the Sudan, Killed in fighting in Ramadi in June and buried in Fallujah, and killed again in a terrorist bombing in Mosul in November. This remarkable career finally came to an end when, we are told, Zarqawi had been killed yet again, and presumably for good, in June of 2006.
0: The lead aircraft is going to engage it here momentarily with a 500-pound bomb on the target.
4: Two bombs dropped by an American F-16 strike home. A house outside Bakuba, north of Baghdad, is flattened. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq and one of the world's most wanted men has been eliminated. Iraqi police who have lost hundreds of comrades in attacks blamed on Zarqawi are celebrating. The White House is relieved. Now Zarqawi
5: has met his end. And this violent man will never murder again.
1: But not everyone believed that this final account of Zarkawi's death was the true one. Rather than simply mistakes in reporting, other members of the Iraqi resistance insisted that Zarkawi had in fact been killed early on in the U.S. invasion and that his name was simply being used to create an excuse for the continued American occupation of the country. Sheikh Jawad al Kalesi, a noted Shiite imam in Baghdad, was quoted in Le Monde as saying, I don't think Abu Musab al-Zarqawi exists. He died in northern Iraq at the beginning of the war. His family even conducted a funeral ceremony in Jordan. Since then, his name has been nothing but a toy, an excuse used by Americans to stay in Iraq. al Khalesi was not the only one with his doubts about Zarqawi's true nature. The Project on Defense Alternatives of the Commonwealth Institute in Massachusetts released a report in 2004 excoriating the U.S. government for its propaganda attempting to portray Zarqawi as a terrorist leader in Iraq. The evidence offered to support the administration's assessment of Zarqawi as a driver of the Iraqi insurgency and top lieutenant of bin Laden is reminiscent, in form and substance, of the spurious evidence regarding Iraq weapons of mass destruction. Indeed, some of the sources may be the same. Similarly, the Financial Times, The Telegraph, Knight Ridder Newspapers, the Los Angeles Times, and Newsweek all published stories in 2004 calling various aspects of the Zarkawi myth into question. A report in The Telegraph in 2006 called him a figurehead around whom dissident groups in Iraq were rallying rather than an elusive fighter directing military operations, noting that the more the Americans blamed al-Zarqawi for terrorist atrocities, the greater his credibility on the Arab street, and quoting an unnamed Sunni insurgent leader as calling Zarqawi an American, Israeli, and Iranian agent who is trying to keep our country unstable so that the Sunnis will keep facing occupation. According to The Atlantic, even Osama bin Laden himself suspected that the group of Jordanian prisoners with whom al-Zarqawi had been granted amnesty in 1998 had been infiltrated by Jordanian intelligence. And then, right before he was reported dead for the last time, skeptics of the Zarqawi narrative were proven right in a remarkable fashion. On April 9, 2004, the Washington Post published proof in the form of internal military documents that the U.S. government had played up the myth of Zarqawi and al-Qaeda in Iraq as part of a psychological operations campaign. The U.S. military is conducting a propaganda campaign to magnify the role of the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, according to internal military documents and officers familiar with the program. For the past two years, U.S. military leaders have been using Iraqi media and other outlets in Baghdad to publicize Zarqawi's role in the insurgency. The documents explicitly list the U.S. home audience as one of the targets of a broader propaganda campaign. In case there was any doubt that the propaganda campaign was targeted at Americans, the program included the Pentagon selectively leaking a letter to a U.S. reporter purported to be written by Zarqawi and boasting of his role in the wave of suicide attacks terrorizing Iraq. The letter was dutifully covered by the New York Times, even though there were serious questions about whether it was real at all. The Washington Post exposé quotes an internal briefing document produced by U.S. military headquarters in Iraq, revealing that U.S. military chief spokesman, Brigadier General Mark Kimmett, boasted that the Zarkawi PSYOP program is the most successful information campaign to date. And then, two months after these explosive revelations, Zarqawi was reported dead for the last time, a character written out of the script once his value as a propaganda construct was exhausted. With Zarqawi out of the picture, something else would be required to keep the American public and the people of the world invested in the war on terror. The main villain in the battle would have to return. Thankfully for the U.S. government, Osama bin Laden was only too happy to oblige. From the time of his miraculous escape from Tora Bora on, the outside world only knew Osama bin Laden from his occasional video releases. The most infamous of these productions was a video released to the public by the U.S. Defense Department on December 13, 2001, supposedly obtained in Afghanistan during the search of a private home in Jalalabad after anti-Taliban forces moved into the city. The tape, we are told, bore a label indicating it was made on November 9, and shows bin Laden sitting on the floor in a bare room in a house in Kandahar with several other men, including two aides and an unidentified cleric or sheikh. Most importantly, it contains, according to the Pentagon-provided subtitles that were added to the video before its distribution to the press, bin Laden's confession to planning the 9-11 attacks. We had notification since the previous Thursday that the event would take place that day, the U.S. government translation has bin Laden saying. We calculated in advance the number of casualties from the enemy who would be killed based on the position of the tower. The press release provided by the Pentagon noted that, due to the poor quality of the tape, they were not able to produce a verbatim transcript, but that their translation does convey the messages and information flow of the conversation, an answer that was apparently good enough for the White House press corps.
4: Ari, on the bin Laden video that the government released last week, can you offer assurances that the omissions in the government-supplied translation were not deliberate?
10: Uh, Mark, I think Secretary Rumsfeld addressed that very eloquently earlier today. Uh, when he, he said, "Number one, I mean, this tape doesn't change anything. Or this this translation doesn't change anything about the facts in the case." Um, the Department of Defense translators worked very diligently on a very short timetable to put together a, a faithful translation, and that's what they did. And if you note on the cover note of what the Department of Defense put out, they wrote, due to the quality of the original tape, it is not a verbatim transcript of every word spoken during the meeting, but does convey the messages and information flow. So I think what you saw was uh, the very best effort possible. And uh, as the Secretary said uh, about the, the translation of Arabic, uh, it's not a precise art that is agreed to by every translator.
1: But this answer was not sufficient for the foreign press. The following week, German TV channel Das Erste broadcast an edition of their investigative program, Monitor, in which they hired their own independent translators to check the Pentagon's transcript of the tape. The report calls the Pentagon translation very problematic, noting that at the most important places where it is held to prove the guilt of bin Laden, it is not identical with the Arabic. Translator Dr. Murad Alami, for instance, found that in the sentence, we calculated in advance the number of casualties from the enemy, the words in advance had simply been inserted by the U.S. government translators. Those words did not appear on the tape. Similarly, the word previous in we had notification since the previous Thursday, and the subsequent statement that an event would take place on that day cannot be heard in the original Arabic version. The Monitor report concludes that the Pentagon translation of Osama bin Laden's supposed confession tape Deliberately adding words in key passages to make it sound like a confession was not only inaccurate, but actually manipulative. As Gernot Rotter a professor of Islamic and Arabic studies at the Asia-Africa Institute at the University of Hamburg, states in the report, The American translators who listened to the tapes and transcribed them apparently wrote a lot of things in that they wanted to hear, but that cannot be heard on the tape no matter how many times you listen to it. The startling revelation that the Osama bin Laden confession tape was not a confession tape at all, aired on Germany's premier public broadcaster and widely discussed in the German press, was never reported in the U.S. That video was followed in short order by a 30-minute video of a visibly gaunt and graying Osama bin Laden delivering what appears to be a last message to the Arab world. Released on December 27, 2001, and presumably recorded during the fight at Tora Bora, bin Laden comments on his own mortality. God willing, America's end is near, and it doesn't depend on my continued existence. Whether Osama is killed or not, the awakening has begun. In the 30-minute video, bin Laden does not move his left arm at all and appears visibly weak. Interested at that moment in turning the public's attention away from Osama bin Laden and toward the next front in the war on terror, Iraq, the Bush administration dismissed the video as Sick propaganda possibly designed to mask the fact that the Al-Qaeda leader was already dead. He could have made the video and then ordered that it be released in the event of his death, the Telegraph quoted one White House aide as saying. The guy is trying to show he's untouched by the U.S. bombing, but he looks under pressure to me. Recorded months after his reported journey to Rawalpindi for kidney dialysis, this video would not be the first or the last time that Osama bin Laden would be reported as dead or dying. Like Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, bin Laden was also reported dead on several occasions in the ensuing years, including On December 26, 2001, when it was reported that Osama bin Laden had died from a serious lung complication in Tora Bora. On January 18, 2002, when Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf told CNN, I think now, frankly, he is dead for the reason he is a kidney patient. In September 2006, when French intelligence leaked a report suggesting bin Laden had died of typhoid fever in Pakistan. And in March 2009, when former U.S. foreign intelligence officer Angelo Cotavilla stated, All the evidence suggests Elvis Presley is more alive today than Osama bin Laden. But, also like Zarkawi. None of these reported deaths stopped the Osama bin Laden character from reappearing on the TV screens of a traumatized public to remind them of the importance of the ongoing war on terror. What followed in the ensuing years was a series of video and audio releases of questionable provenance, often reported in carefully worded turns of phrase that gave the press plausible deniability as to whether or not the recordings really were of Osama bin Laden. A message aired on Al Jazeera in February 2003, for instance, was reported by the BBC as a poor quality audio recording in which a man's voice, identified as bin Laden's, is heard calling for suicide attacks against Americans and resistance to any attack on Iraq. The recordings were often mundane. An April 2006 audio message of a speaker believed to be Osama bin Laden called on Muslims to prepare for a long war in Sudan. A January 2010 audio message warned of the dangers of climate change. Talk about climate change is not an ideological luxury, but a reality, the speaker, purportedly bin Laden, told his fellow jihadis. Other recordings appeared at opportune times for the planners of the war on terror, catapulting the terror threat back into the public consciousness just when questions about that narrative were beginning to emerge. The 2004 U.S. presidential election contest between George Bush and John Kerry, for instance, featured an unusual October surprise, a new Osama bin Laden videotape in which the terror mastermind appears to claim responsibility for 9-11 and to warn the American public of future strikes.
7: This is the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather
3: reporting from CBS News Headquarters in New York. Good evening. With just four days left in the presidential campaign, Osama bin Laden suddenly dropped himself right in the middle of it with a videotaped message to the people of the United States. The fugitive al-Qaeda leader admits for the first time that he indeed ordered the September 11th attack on America. He lays out his reasons for it, and he threatens another attack. This tape tends to confirm that bin Laden is alive and well, safely, somewhere. President Bush responded by saying the United States will not be intimidated. Senator Kerry said the country is united in its determination to hunt bin Laden down.
1: And then again, in September 2007, just days before General David Petraeus was set to deliver his report to Congress on the controversial surge in Iraq, and just days before the 6th anniversary of 9-11... There was Osama bin Laden to remind the public of the ever-present terror threat.
5: Just days before the sixth anniversary of 9-11, the man responsible for the death and horror that day is coming out of the shadows with a new videotape and more invective aimed at the United States. He lectures Americans on everything from religion to politics to taxes, no overt threats, But authorities are looking at whether the tape contains any signal to indicate a future attack.
1: Capitalizing on the conveniently timed video release, President Bush was quick to cite it as evidence that al-Qaeda was connected to the war in Iraq and that the increasingly unpopular war, now generally understood to have been an illegal invasion waged on false pretenses, was in fact an essential part of the war on terror.
5: I found it interesting that on the tape, Iraq was mentioned, which is a reminder that Iraq is a part of this war against extremists.
1: But buried beneath the attention-grabbing headlines and substanceless soundbites with which the media covered this release, troubling questions began to arise about the nature of the video. The aging, weary, gaunt, graying, and partially paralyzed Osama bin Laden of 2001 was gone replaced by a visibly younger and healthier man, despite having numerous health problems and despite having presumably spent the better part of a decade on the run as the world's most wanted man. Sporting jet-black hair and what many media commentators pointed out looked like a fake beard, the figure on the screen seemed to be moving in an unrealistic way. Bizarrely, the video freezes at the 1 minute and 58 second mark while the audio continues. The image remains frozen for most of the video message only resuming briefly around the 12-minute mark. What's more, all of the references to current events, those parts referenced in passing on the evening news as proving that Osama is still alive, take place during the times when the video is frozen. In fact, the video proved so unusual that media commentators had to go out of their way to assure their viewers that it was indeed real. Our chief investigative correspondent, Brian Ross, joins me again tonight from New York. Brian? Charlie, U.S. authorities say tonight
6: there is no doubt the tape is authentic. It is bin Laden, black beard and all.
1: Perhaps the strangest part of the video, however, was the manner in which it was released to the public. The video, it turns out, was not released by al-Qaeda, but by the U.S. government. The month after the video's release, it was reported that the video had originally been intercepted by Site Intelligence Group, described as one of several small commercial intelligence firms that specialize in intercepting al-Qaeda's internet communications, often by clandestine means. According to the Washington Post, Site founder Rita Katz told the Post that her company covertly obtained an early copy of a bin Laden video message in early September. Then shared the video with senior administration officials on September 7th on the condition that it not be distributed or made public before its official release. Soon afterward, the video was downloaded by dozens of computers registered to government agencies. Within hours, Site's copy of the video was leaked to television news networks and broadcast worldwide. It was not explained how Site had obtained an early copy of an Osama bin Laden video. But it was far from the only time that mysteriously well connected internet researchers had unexplained exclusive access to Al Qaeda video productions. Researchers and companies who supposedly scooped the intelligence agencies by discovering and publishing Al Qaeda messages, sometimes even ahead of Al Qaeda itself, included SITE, or the Search for International Terrorist Entities whose promotional materials touted the company's one-of-a-kind access to messages, videos, and advance warnings of suicide bombings from the most hard-to-reach corners of violent online extremist communities, whose clientele included leading media outlets and even government agencies, and whose founder, Rita Katz, was born in Iraq to a wealthy Jewish businessman father who was convicted of spying for Israel in 1969 in a military tribunal and executed in a public hanging. Which we are told, Katz did not think had much bearing on her work, and who, despite not having any intelligence connections herself, found a job allowing her to search for terrorists online shortly after moving to New York in the 1990s. Laura Mansfield, a pseudonymous South Carolina housewife who, despite being a self-described Mom sitting here in her dining room, moving, you know, typing away on my computer, is fluent in Arabic, likes to monitor jihadi message boards and chat rooms and who, with no special training or connections to the world of terror or espionage, was consistently able to find and publicize al-Qaeda videos before anyone else, including a 2007 video of Osama bin Laden that, it was quickly discovered, was actually a five-year-old video that had already been previously released but reported as new by the credulous mainstream press, and multiple releases featuring Azam the American a.k.a. Adam Perlman, the Jewish Californian whose grandfather was a board member of the Anti-Defamation League and who, we are told, converted to Islam with a single internet post and was quickly recruited by Al-Qaeda to serve as translator, video producer, and cultural interpreter for their media committee.
9: O you who believe, fight the unbelievers who
6: are closest in proximity to you and let them find harshness in you and know that Allah is with those who fear him
1: and Intel Center, a company described as a private contractor working for intelligence agencies and headed by Ben Vinsky, the former director of intelligence special projects at iDefense, where he worked alongside people like Jim Milnick, a psychological operations specialist who served 16 years in the U.S. Army in the Defense Intelligence Agency that similarly supplied the U.S. government and media with al-Qaeda videos released by al-Sahab, the terror group's media production arm, and somehow exclusively obtained by this private contractor in Virginia. The public had good reason to question the reality of these suspiciously timed and mysteriously sourced audio and video recordings. In 1999, William Arkin wrote a piece for the Washington Post called When Seeing and Hearing Isn't Believing, in which he reported on the digital morphing technologies that were then being worked on by research teams at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico and elsewhere, He reported on one demonstration of this technology, a fake recording of General Carl W. Steiner, former Commander-in-Chief U.S. Special Operations Command, announcing, Gentlemen, we have called you together to inform you that we are going to overthrow the United States government. The fake audio was so impressive that General Steiner asked for a copy. Another demonstration involved Colin Powell announcing that he was being well-treated by his captors. Digital Morphing voice, video, and photo, has come of age, available for use in psychological operations. PSYOPs, as the military calls it, seeks to exploit human vulnerabilities in enemy governments, militaries, and populations to pursue national and battlefield objectives. Being able to manufacture convincing audio or video, they say, might be the difference in a successful military operation or coup. The technology continued to feature in PSYOPs' planning as the War of Terror dragged on, In 2003, the CIA Iraq operations group came up with a wacky idea for discrediting Saddam Hussein in the eyes of his people, to create a video purporting to show the Iraqi dictator having sex with a teenage boy. Amazingly, Stein also confirmed that the CIA did make a fake video of Osama bin Laden, the agency actually did make a video purporting to show Osama bin Laden and his cronies sitting around a campfire swigging bottles of liquor and savoring their conquests with boys, one of the former CIA officers recalled, chuckling at the memory. But as successful as these information operations and Al-Qaeda media releases were in keeping the terror threat in the minds of the public, the neocons directing this war of terror were going to need much more than that to meet their objectives. The war on terror, launched in Afghanistan and waged in Iraq, was never meant to end there.
0: All right. Let's uh, come back for a minute here. I've, I've okay, got. We are uh,
1: just, just, just about to get into what may be the craziest part of this story and the change in the war of terror narrative that happened there. So I want people to be prepared for that, but we should probably just take a little breather and answer some questions.
0: Okay. Brock, and and, you and, had and that's,
1: that's saying a lot, isn't it? To say that this might be the craziest part, given <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what we've already seen. Indeed.
0: Well, I've, I've got a couple a, a couple questions in general. Uh, Brock, you said you had one or somebody had one from uh, the YouTube side. Oh, uh, I have,
1: I have one. Okay. Uh, this comes from the esteemed Dr. Bass Ackwards. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder what uh, medical specialty Dr. Bass-Ackwards is. Perhaps uh, proctology? <laughs> anyway, uh, Dr. Bass-Ackwards writes, uh, always wondered why they didn't just pretend to find WMDs in Iraq, weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, right? Because they will lie about absolutely anything and everything to do with this story, right? So why not lie about it? Well, actually, they did try to float a lie years later that I know some people picked up on because I did get a question for it that I answered in questions for Corbett years ago, maybe 2015 or something like that, which was there was a story that came out in the New York times in 2014 about, Oh, actually they, the troops did discover some chemical weapons in Iraq and they had these health problems with it. And the Bush administration covered that up. And now we can reveal this to you. So actually, actually (laughs) there really (laughs) was WMD guys. Um, but that's that's total bunk, as you might imagine. So um, for the, the real debunking of this, I will direct people to uh, Scott Horden's book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And in his chapter on the Iraq war, he has a whole section on this particular lie. He writes, uh, for years, a viral email went around which claimed that soldiers found the weapons of mass destruction after all. And it was just too bad that George W. Bush was too honorable to take credit for being right. But that is not true. All you need to do is read the actual article the emails authors cherry picked from. And then he goes into that New York Times article I cited earlier. Long story short, it was it was bunk. Uh, And actually, it points actually it points to the uh, the the weapons of mass destruction, the chemical weapons that were sold to the Iraqis in the 80s. It had nothing to do with any sort of, you know, new weapons program in the 90s that justified the invasion in 2003 or anything like that. It was pointing towards certain things that had been discovered regarding the stuff from the 80s. But even then, it was stuff the UN already knew about. Again, it was total lie, but it was floated enough that I know even people in my audience said, well, didn't they actually find some WMDs? No, they did not. So why didn't they lie is still a good question. Why didn't they just say they found it? Oops, mm-hmm. hey, look, there's a big stash here. They could have undoubtedly gotten away with it, as as we can see, or yeah, as we can see through this documentary, they lie about so much. Or, it, or, does, it does create at least the possibility that, you know, maybe in the end, the Bush administration and the neocons were set up to take a fall mm-hmm. in the long run because the people who might be puppeteering this larger run agenda perhaps know, you know, several dominoes down this chain of events this is this is going to unravel in various ways. We can throw certain people under the bus. Look at what they did with Iraq. How can that narrative be used going forward? I think that's something we have to put our thinking caps on about.
0: That's interesting. As what maybe even just the entire United States, in and of itself, being used in this way, you know, by larger forces. From exactly above right. Yeah, because
1: because one of the things that has emerged is you know America evil, therefore you know UN good. Mm. Right. That is one strain of thought that sort of inserted itself uh, in this time of craziness of the Bush administration.
0: Very concerning. It it speaks to something you've also made clear a lot in the past that, you know, we tend to to put this air of omnipotence on some of these agenda perceptions or the government themselves. And it's not really ever that way, you know, that there's there are ways they can be tripped up by people within because as you point, if we pointed out in a lot of different ways, they want people to believe that they're good, even people that work underneath them, that there's some larger, greater good they're working toward. And if somebody in that position finds out, that could potentially be problematic. I mean, who knows? Just possibilities. But that could be one reason. But it's a great question. because It seems they can just make up literally from whole cloth, which was kind of what I was just thinking about it as this whole part went through it's really just mind-blowing to think about the the, the bin laden evidence that with, earlier in the episode that you know Nate, the article five discussion completely not there fabricated the wmd lie entirely the zarkawi psyop that they basically admit to again the bin laden why wouldn't we assume the same thing you know same idea the the translation of bin laden's video i mean just one to the next it's like You start wondering, like I am today with everything else, like did were people even truly buying this entirely or were we just being presented with the idea that because how can you possibly I mean, I guess because this stuff wasn't really fully
1: aware to everybody. That's exactly it. It's because now when you go back and you look at the details of Mm -hmm. all of these parts, when you actually research it and actually dig down, oh, that was total lie. That was total nonsense. That was stupid. But no one was doing that or very few people were doing that at the time. Right. Most people are just seeing the the daily news headlines and the evening news and the background as they're eating their tv dinner or or, you know glancing through the newspaper most people were not keeping up with it to this extent but as soon as you do as soon as you have the ability to go back and dig up this information and really look at it and that's i mean honestly that is part of the marvel in a sense of the time we're living through where someone like me sitting in a living room in japan can be literally compiling and putting all of these pieces of the puzzle together in a way that makes it absolutely obviously transparent that this is a lie um in a way that perhaps wasn't even possible a couple of decades ago because the internet was not what it was it's what it is now
0: right that's a huge point right there that the last thing i'm thinking of is there's little pieces of what we see building in today you know the 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 deep fake discussion the climate change point that gets shoehorned in out of nowhere it's very (laughs) osama
1: was really (laughs) concerned about climate change guys
0: it makes no sense at all yeah but the deep fake thing is really interesting to see how far back that could have been being used and we're barely even just being told about it now you know even though it's probably already happening all over the place we can't see you know we see but don't know very interesting i i only had one question i had but i'm going to save it till the end from somebody else that was more of a kind of a broad question did you guys have any other questions pulled from the chats you want to get into in between here I have plenty of questions,
2: but yeah, I'm going to leave them for uh, the Q and A at the end.
1: Okay. Sure. All right. So everyone else on whatever platform you're on, get your questions in. We'll answer them at the end. I think we'll go straight through to the end because this is the important meat of uh, where we're heading here. So we'll go straight through to the end and answer any questions at the end.
0: Yep. Outstanding. And I, for those who know, I I have been trying to pull some off to the side. So you guys, you're not, you know, you know try to save till the end, but we are pulling them as we see them if we can. So, all right, let's get back to it. Excited to see the finish here.
5: The other strain of radicalism in the Middle East is Shia extremism, supported and embodied by the regime that sits in Tehran. Iran has long been a source of trouble in the region. It is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Iran's actions threaten the security of nations everywhere. And that is why the United States is rallying friends and allies around the world to isolate the regime to impose economic sanctions, we will confront this danger before it is too late.
1: But getting the public, already weary of the years-long struggle in Afghanistan and increasingly disillusioned with the debacle in Iraq, on board with the invasion of yet another country, was going to be difficult unless another spectacular terror event came along to justify opening up yet another front in the war on terror. And, if the terror boogeyman was not willing to provide such a justification, the neocons were once again ready and willing to create it.
10: What you're writing there is that Cheney, there was a meeting in the
6: White House where Cheney presided over looking to cook up the next war, a a false war based on false intelligence.
5: Uh, a dozen ideas proffered, how to, how to trigger a war. The one that interested me the most was, why don't we build, we in our shipyard, build four or five boats that look like Iranian PT boats, put Navy SEALs on them with a lot of arms, and the next time one of our boats goes through the Straits of Hormuz, start a shoot-up. Might cost some lives, and it was ejected because you can't have Americans killing Americans. But that that's the kind of, that's the level of stuff we were talking about provocation.
1: Seymour Hirsch was not the only one warning about the possibility of the Bush White House staging a terror event in the waning days of its administration to trigger a bold new escalation with Iran. Even Zbigniew Brzezinski, whose involvement in Operation Cyclone started the American involvement in Afghanistan that led to the creation of al-Qaeda in the first place, warned the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 2007 that a military provocation or terrorist act whose origin would be very difficult to trace could be staged and blamed on Tehran in order to justify U.S. military action on Iran. A plausible scenario for a military
5: collision with Iran involves Iraqi failure to meet the benchmarks, followed by accusations of Iranian responsibility for the failure then by some provocation in Iraq or a terrorist act in the United States blamed on Iran culminating in a quote-unquote defensive US military action against Iran that plunges a lonely America into a spreading and deepening quagmire eventually ranging across Iraq Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan.
1: But the neocons, suffering from plummeting approval ratings, mounting domestic difficulties, and the ramifications of a global financial crisis, no longer had the political capital to stage terror events and garner public approval for their agenda. By 2008, After seven long years in the grip of the existential threat that they were told was the basis for a generation-defining, civilizational struggle with no end in sight, the American public was getting tired. They didn't want the neocons and their endless war on terror. They were hoping for change. Luckily for them, that's precisely what the 2008 US presidential election seemed to offer.
7: In the face of war, you believe there can be peace. In the face of despair, you believe there can be hope. We are one nation, we are one people, and our time for change has come.
1: the public was ready for change. In fact, the idea of a shift from the bellicose, belligerent, aggressive foreign policy and the war-on-terror rhetoric of the neocons to the promised hope and change of the Obama administration was so enticing that not only did Obama win the 2008 election, he also won over the world at large. So excited were people for the prospect of peace that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee decided to bestow their 2009 prize on Obama before he had taken a single substantive action in office.
8: Good morning. Good morning. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided that Nobel's prize for 2009 shall be awarded to President Barack Obama for his extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and people-to-people cooperation.
1: Those not swept up in the hope and change delirium were quick to point out that the committee had made a mistake in handing a peace prize to a president still actively involved in military engagements. What not even his most cynical critics seemed prepared for, however, was the idea that Obama would not only continue the Bush administration's war on terror, but that he would greatly expand it. From the two-front war in Afghanistan and Iraq under Bush, Obama would ultimately lead the war of terror into seven countries. One of Obama's first moves in office was to oversee a dramatic escalation in Afghanistan, a troop surge that was meant to resolve the security issues in the country, but actually exacerbated them, finally leading to the dramatic downfall of the U.S.-backed regime and the reinstallation of the Taliban in 2021. And as we shall see, despite promising a swift resolution to the war in Iraq, not only was the handover of authority to the Iraqi government delayed as long as legally possible, But the U.S. was ultimately drawn in again as the terror group that they fostered led to a battle against the Islamic State. But the newly revitalized War on Terror, now given new cover by a smiling, peace-prize-winning, softer-spoken Commander-in-Chief, did not end there. Obama oversaw the expansion of Bush's drone war into Pakistan.
7: U.S. President Barack Obama, meanwhile, has admitted for the first time that drones are regularly striking Taliban and Al-Qaeda targets in Pakistan's tribal areas. I want to make sure that people understand, actually, drones have not caused a huge number of civilian casualties. Uh, For the most part, they have been very precise precision strikes against al-Qaeda and their affiliates.
1: He led the kinetic military action in Libya against previous war on terror ally, Muammar Gaddafi.
7: Today, I authorize the armed forces of the United States to begin a limited military action in Libya in support of an international effort to protect Libyan civilians. That action has
1: now begun. He began the decade-long attempt to overthrow previous war-on-terror ally Bashar al-Assad in Syria.
7: My policy from the beginning has been that uh, President Assad uh, had lost credibility, that he uh, attacked his own people, has killed his own people, uh, unleashed a military against innocent civilians, uh, and that the only way to bring stability and peace to Syria is going to be for Assad to step down and, and to move forward on a political transition.
1: He waged war in Yemen, along with the Saudi government, who had supported and fostered terror groups in the region for years.
7: Documents obtained by Reuters show the U.S. government's concerned it could be implicated in potential war crimes in Yemen because of its support for a Saudi-led coalition air campaign. The Obama administration's continued to authorize weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, despite warnings last year from government lawyers that it might be considered a co-belligerent under international
1: law and he extended the authorization for use of military force. The legislation passed in the wake of 9-11 authorizing the president to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determined planned, authorized, committed, or aided that attack to include al-Shabaab in Somalia.
4: The United States obviously has uh, uh, been engaged in helping Somalia fight back against... uh, Uh, Tribal terror and the
3: the challenges to the cohesion of the state of Somalia.
1: But although these escalations appeared to be a mere continuation of the war on terror that was sold to the public in the wake of 9-11, they were not. In fact, it quickly became apparent that a remarkable transition had begun to occur. Al-Qaeda... The ultimate face of evil and the undisputed enemy in the grand terror war narrative were now the good guys, or at least serviceable allies, in the fight against the next target in the war on terror. This unbelievable turnaround had in fact begun during the Bush administration, when the neocons had started to set their sights on Iran. Being predominantly Shiite, Iran is in fact the enemy of the radical Wahhabis and Salafist Muslims that populate the ranks of al-Qaeda and other Sunni terror groups. In targeting Iran, the U.S., like the British Empire before them, found it convenient to switch allegiances, arming, funding, and promoting the very radicals they had just been at war with in order to defeat their enemy of the moment. As Seymour Hersh reported in 2007, In the past few months, as the situation in Iraq has deteriorated, the Bush administration, in both its public diplomacy and its covert operations, has significantly shifted its Middle East strategy. The redirection, as some inside the White House have called the new strategy, has brought the United States closer to an open confrontation with Iran and, in parts of the region, propelled it into a widening sectarian conflict between Shiite and Sunni Muslims. To undermine Iran, which is predominantly Shiite, the Bush administration has decided, in effect, to reconfigure its priorities in the Middle East. A byproduct of these activities has been the bolstering of Sunni extremist groups that espouse a militant vision of Islam and are hostile to America, and sympathetic to al-Qaeda. As Hirsch detailed in his articles on the redirection and preparing the battlefield, and as other mainstream sources eventually corroborated, this shift in Middle East strategy by the Bush administration included Supporting Fatah al-Islam, a militant Islamic force led by a former associate of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi dedicated to spreading the ideology of al-Qaeda, in their struggle against Iranian ally and Israeli enemy Hezbollah. Providing covert funds to the mujahideen i a strange cult of personality that, as a violent group of radicals that participated in bombings inside Iran and even aided Mossad in assassinating Iranian scientists, was not merely lauded by the U.S., but openly promoted at gala events by neocons and their fellow travelers. Secretly backing opposition groups in Syria, one of Iran's most important regional allies, and supplying money and weapons to Jundullah, a group with close ties to Al-Qaeda, including reportedly being at one time headed by alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, that conducted raids into Iran from bases in Pakistan with covert CIA assistance. That these operations would have started under Bush and the neocons came as little surprise to those who knew anything about the real nature of the so-called war on terror. That they would be continued and even expanded under Obama the ambassador of hope and change, was more surprising to those who did not yet grasp the true scale and scope of this war. No, the substance of the Bush redirection did not change under Obama. Only the tone and flavor of that policy changed. Obama did not win multiple advertising awards for his 2008 hope and change election campaign for nothing. As a shrewd salesman of an unpopular agenda, he knew that to get the public on board with such a radical shift in objectives he was going to need an equally radical event to take place to tie a bow on the Osama bin Laden narrative and redirect the public's attention. And, on May 1st, 2011, that event occurred.
10: Senior Capitol Hill producer Chad Pergram confirms... Osama bin Laden is dead. Senior Capitol Hill producer Chad Pergram confirms Osama bin Laden is dead. Can it be, ladies and gentlemen, could it be?
7: Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al Qaeda, and a terrorist who is responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children.
1: Codenamed Operation Neptune Spear, the mission to kill bin Laden involved a daring team of Navy SEALs flying two stealth-modified Black Hawk helicopters from the Jalalabad military base in Afghanistan through Pakistani airspace straight to Abbottabad, the affluent military town where the world's most wanted man had evidently been living for years, evading the most comprehensive dragnet in history. Crash-landing one of the choppers in the compound courtyard, a massive firefight broke out. The SEALs, Clearing weapon stashes and barricades while fending off bin Laden's henchmen, made their way to the third-floor bedroom where the dastardly villain used one of his wives as a human shield. Shooting her in the leg to get her out of the way, the SEALs then managed to land two shots on their target, one hitting bin Laden in the head and the other in the chest, just as the terror kingpin was reaching for the gun he kept at the ready by his headboard. Making good their escape, the Navy SEAL heroes blew up their damaged helicopter while a standby chopper that had been prepared for the mission in case of an emergency flew in and whisked the remaining task force members out with bin Laden's body in tow. Returning to Bagram Air Base, bin Laden's body was immediately flown out to the USS Carl Vinson where it was buried at sea in accordance with Islamic tradition. And just like that, it was done. Public enemy number one, the face of the War on Terror, was dead, slain by the valiant Navy SEALs in a daring operation that was broadcast in real time to the White House Situation Room, where the Commander-in-Chief of the War of Terror, Barack Obama, and his iron-willed Cabinet of Terror warriors watched with steely determination. Indeed, this was not the stuff of history books, no dry, dusty tale of some minor police action or military operation. It may not have been the grand showdown in the cave fortress that the public had been prepared for, but befitting the comic book supervillain of the War on Terror narrative, this was the stuff of Hollywood blockbusters. Geronimo.
6: Forgotten country. Geronimo. Geronimo.
1: Yes, this was the stuff of Hollywood blockbusters. But, like a Hollywood blockbuster, the story of the raid was itself fiction. In fact, in the face of mild questioning by the generally deferential press, every single aspect of the confusing and often contradictory story that was told to the public in those euphoric hours after Obama's momentous announcement was proven to be a lie. There had been no firefight. Osama was not armed he did not use his wife as a human shield. Burial at sea was not part of Islamic tradition. In fact, it was directly opposed to that tradition. Even the famous picture from the Situation Room was a lie. There had been no live video feed of the raid. But it wasn't just the details of the raid itself that had been a fabrication. The entire story of the decade-long manhunt for Osama dramatized in Oscar-winning movies like Zero Dark Thirty and recounted in countless reports, books, and tell-alls, proved to be similarly fraudulent. In fact, the story began to fall apart from the very moment it was told to the public. But while most of the press remained content to pick at the corners of the story, leaving the substance of the narrative intact, others dug deeper, looking for answers amid the confusing confluence of lies, obfuscations, cover-ups, and contradictions that surrounded the raid. In a lengthy article for the London Review of Books in 2015 that, sourcing to unnamed retired officials with no direct knowledge of the events recounted, was about as solidly sourced as the official account, Seymour Hersh alleged that, while bin Laden had indeed been killed in Abbottabad, he had in fact been living at the compound as a prisoner of the ISI for years, and that every part of the official narrative of the raid, from the story of the al-Qaeda courier by which the CIA allegedly discovered the compound, to the phony vaccination drive to collect bin Laden's DNA, to the burial at sea, was in fact an element of an elaborate, and seemingly unnecessary, cover story to obscure that fact. In a piece for The Independent the year after the raid, Patrick Coburn pointed out the inherent contradiction between early reports that the raid had uncovered a treasure trove of intelligence that, portrayed bin Laden as a spider at the center of a conspiratorial web, and later admissions that he had had almost no contact with the outside world and was increasingly delusional about his organization and its capabilities. Others simply pointed out that, given this was at least the ninth occasion in which journalists, politicians, intelligence officials, or others had pronounced Osama bin Laden dead, it was not to be believed without evidence. But that evidence was not forthcoming. Instead, the government went to extraordinary lengths to cover it up. All the files from the raid, including copies of the death certificate and autopsy report for bin Laden, as well as the results of tests to identify the body, were deleted from the Pentagon's computers and transferred to the CIA, where they could be more carefully guarded from Freedom of Information Act requests. Pictures and video of the raid, including pictures of Osama bin Laden's dead body that, the public were told, may be released, were instead sealed away forever at the time all that was released were a few short videos of a man purported to be osama bin laden that it was claimed had been taken from the compound although it was never explained why bin laden would have poorly shot video of his back to the camera watching himself on tv and some salacious details about the records allegedly seized from the compound's computers like the devout muslim jihadi's predilection for porn that seemed reminiscent of the CIA's previous wacky ideas for faking videos about Hussein and Bin Laden. But CIA director Leon Panetta did leak classified details of the raid at a 2011 award ceremony attended by Mark Boll, the screenwriter who would go on to write and produce Zero Dark Thirty, the Hollywood dramatization of the manhunt for Osama that portrayed the official version of the raid on the silver screen, and even falsely implied that the CIA's illegal torture program had been essential in helping to track down the terror kingpin. The full truth of what happened in Abbottabad, now obscured by lies, misinformation, selective leaks, self-serving tell-alls, and still classified data, will likely never see the light of day. But to the directors of the War of Terror, that is beside the point. Osama bin Laden had served his purpose as the villain in the terror war story. And... Having served that purpose, he was being written out of the script. In the end, that was all Osama bin Laden had ever been, a character in the terror war drama. One so good that, if he didn't exist, they would have had to invent him. Well, it's pretty obvious that a judgment is
3: coalescing around the president that it was Osama bin Laden.
11: I, I, I know we live in a country where we're often told that the first thing that comes to your mind put it down put the little mark in there i feel slightly uncomfortable because i spent so many years wondering how the myth of osama bin laden got started we have the osama bin laden who was the great war hero in afghanistan we have osama bin laden who was trained by cia funded and supported by cia during three years of war i was there at the same time bin laden was there he was not the great warrior that went and fought the Soviet Union to a standstill. CIA had nothing to do with him. I think that that mythological Osama bin Laden—never mind that he's an absolutely evil man—but the mythological Osama bin Laden causes me trouble, and I think maybe there there is another answer out there. I'm not certain that I know what it is.
3: There's no question in my mind that you're skeptical that Osama bin Laden aided and abetted, or at least protected, by the Taliban should be the principal target of some large military operation if I'm wrong about that tell me now
11: no 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 you're not wrong Dan I'm saying is uh, let let me step back one step on this and say Osama bin Laden is an evil man and he's a component of the terrorism that we're dealing with across the board all I'm saying is, is that I think Osama bin Laden has become the metaphor for the entire problem of, of terrorism involving Muslims with perce- perceived grievances against the United States. And I think it would be wrong to say this is a one size fits all operation and to go after bin Laden because an operation as sophisticated as carried out yesterday was some was, was an operation that was concealed from us for months probably before it took place. It happened without essentially a hitch except for one aircraft. And there is no reason to believe that these same people weren't capable of covering their tracks somehow on the way out. Now, I would go so far as to say that, that this, this group who was responsible for that, uh, if they didn't have an Osama bin Laden out there, they'd, they'd invent one, because he's a terrific uh, diversion for the rest of the world.
1: The death of Osama bin Laden may have ended one chapter in the War on Terror, but it was not the end of the story. In a key sense, that story would simply repeat, with the rise of al-Qaeda serving as a template that the terror war planners could draw upon as needed in their efforts to prolong their never-ending conflict indefinitely. The alignment with radical Islamists to achieve short-term geostrategic goals, a strategy refined by the British Empire over centuries of practice in the great game of global geopolitics, And reaching its apotheosis with the U.S. operation to arm the Afghan Mujahideen in the 1980s, was simply employed once again as the U.S. led its NATO allies in a humanitarian war against Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Former enemies in the war on terror, including veterans of the Iraq insurgency who had been killing American troops in Iraq, and even designated terrorists who had been rendered and tortured by the CIA, were now the good guys, helping to overthrow Gaddafi's government in Libya. That same story played out yet again in Syria, where the US and its regional allies once again made a deal with the devil, this time in the name of toppling the government of Bashar al-Assad. Arming the most radical elements of these terror groups with US-procured weapons and training them at a US joint operation base in Jordan, it was not long before the Bush-era redirection of the terror war was complete, and Al-Qaeda was now widely recognized as a convenient ally of the US in Syria. In 2012, Council on Foreign Relations senior fellow Ed Hussein wrote of al-Qaeda's specter in Syria, noting that the Syrian rebels would be immeasurably weaker today without al-Qaeda in their ranks. In 2014, a trio of foreign policy experts published a piece for the CFR on The Good and Bad of Arar al-Sham, an al-Qaeda-linked group worth befriending. And in 2015, Barack Mendelssohn writing in the pages of the same foreign affairs magazine in which Philip Zelikow and his co-authors had predicted the terror war, penned, Accepting Al-Qaeda, the enemy of the United States enemy, in which he argued, Since 9-11, Washington has considered Al-Qaeda the greatest threat to the United States, one that must be eliminated regardless of cost or time. After Washington killed Osama bin Laden in 2011, it made Ayman al-Zawahiri, Al-Qaeda's new leader, its next number one target. But the instability in the Middle East following the Arab revolutions and the meteoric rise of the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham require that Washington rethink its policy toward al-Qaeda, particularly its targeting of Zawahiri. Destabilizing al-Qaeda at this time may in fact work against U.S. efforts to defeat ISIS. In conclusion, Mendelssohn writes flatly, It is certainly ironic that at this point, when the United States is the closest it has ever been to destroying al-Qaeda, its interests would be better served by keeping the terrorist organization afloat and Zawahiri alive. Such arguments, unthinkable during the bin Laden years, were suddenly not only thinkable, but were being openly promoted in beltway foreign policy think tank circles. That such a dramatic turnaround could even be considered, let alone advocated, so soon after the years-long propaganda campaign portraying al-Qaeda as an existential threat to the West is only surprising to those who were ignorant of the real history of al-Qaeda and the real origins of the terror war. To those who did know this history, the fact that those in the State Department's orbit were now openly calling for accommodation of, and even alliance with, al-Qaeda came as no surprise. And it similarly came as no surprise that this alliance led, exactly as it had in Afghanistan in the 1980s, to the rise of a new terror group, the Islamic State.
6: ISIS, an al-Qaeda-bred
2: terrorist group spreading its wings online, savvier than its predecessors with a new array of tricks up its sleeves.
7: They have rampaged across cities and villages, killing innocent, unarmed civilians. The threat from this ISIS group beyond just that region, reaching into the rest of the world,
1: Rising from the ashes of the same al-Qaeda in Iraq that had been led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the U.S. military's self-proclaimed most successful information campaign to date, the Islamic State rose to international prominence in 2014 when it captured Raqqa in Syria and began a campaign that saw it take over Mosul and Tikrit in northern Iraq before announcing the establishment of a caliphate. As a convenient justification for re-engaging the American military in Iraq, and as another excuse for military intervention in syria it was only later that the truth began to emerge not only had the u.s armed and trained these very isis fighters that they were now engaged in mortal struggle with and not only had the u.s's own defense intelligence agency precisely predicted the rise of an islamic state in this area of syria and iraq two years before it happened but u.s-led forces repeatedly stood down as isis convoys moved unimpeded allowing them to take ramadi in 2015 Allowing a convoy of stranded ISIS fighters to return home in 2017. The career of the group's new leader, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, followed the now familiar terror boogeyman pattern. Like his predecessor, Zarqawi, Baghdadi was pronounced dead, alive, arrested, dead, and alive again so often that news of his actions quickly descended into farce. Detained by U.S. forces at Camp Bukha in Iraq in 2004, he was reportedly arrested again in March 2007 and killed in May of that year, before being arrested yet again in 2009, and killed yet again in 2010, at which point even the Times was forced to concede that the arrest or death of Mr. Baghdadi, the insurgent fighter, has been reported so many times that it has become a macabre joke. But he was not done yet. He was reported to have died in an Israeli hospital in April of 2015, then killed in an airstrike in October 2015, and killed again by the Russians in June 2017, before the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights released a statement insisting he really is dead this time in July 2017. Yet still he continued to reappear, reliably resurrected in the headlines of the establishment press to terrorize the public as needed until the final report of his death in 2019. But perhaps the most remarkable aspect of the announcement of this, the final death of this remarkably resilient terror mastermind, carefully staged to bring to mind Obama's dramatic announcement of the death of Osama bin Laden and to rally the country around the flag once again.
10: Last night, the United States
5: brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice.
10: Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead.
1: Is that few in the public seemed even to notice that it had taken place. And, in 2022 when Biden took his turn as the conquering hero, announcing the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri.
3: My fellow Americans, on Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed
1: the emir of al-Qaeda. Ayman al-Zawahiri. Again, it was greeted by a collective shrug. Few in the public even knew Zawahiri's name, let alone gave him much thought. For a world that had just lived through two decades of near-daily assurances that Al-Qaeda was so existential a threat to human civilization that it justified a worldwide, never-ending war on terror of unlimited scope, this was nothing short of remarkable. The war of terror, it seemed, might end not with a bang, but a whimper. For the families of Zamaria Ahmadi and all the millions whose blood was spilled in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya... Syria, Yemen, Somalia, and all the other lands that have been torn apart by the senseless carnage of the past two decades, the growing apathy of the American public to the terror war narrative may come as cold comfort. But to those who have spent decades living under the shadow of the ever-present terror fear-mongering, cynically wielded by politicians and governments to keep their populations cowering under the weight of color-coded terror threats, the rejection of the terror war narrative Is undeniably a turning point. But even if the public, having snapped out of the Al Qaeda delusion, are content to move on with their lives and to prepare to live in a post terror world, the terror warriors have other plans. What many in the public have failed to realize is that the war of terror was never really about Osama bin Laden, it was never really about Al Qaeda, it wasn't about radical Muslims. At base, It wasn't even about geopolitical goals or reshaping the map of the Middle East. It was about us. The Obama administration's internal legal justification for assassinating U.S. citizens without charge has been revealed for the first time. I don't know. If the president's going to kill these people, he needs to let them know. Some of the people might be
3: terrorists or people who are missing fingers. Some people have stains on their clothing. Some people have changed the color of their hair.
4: This was no mere protest gone awry. It was what they used to care about most on the right. The worst kind of planned violence, terrorism.
3: These are not acts of peaceful protest, but really domestic
10: terror. The assistant director of the FBI's counterterrorism division told Congress that the bureau currently has 850 open domestic
3: terror cases. Half of those are anti-government or anti-authority extremists. And uh, this was what uh, DHS decided to put out in a bulletin that now if you have um, COVID misinformation that they classify misinformation, you are a
5: domestic terrorist.
6: First. We are broadening
5: the scope of Canada's anti-money laundering and terrorist financing rules so that they cover crowdfunding platforms and the payment service providers they use. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdainful pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols they are children of the same foul spirit and it is our continuing duty to confront them
1: there just below the surface of the war on terror story that was sold to the public the story of radical freedom-hating muslims and cowardly terror attacks and crusading presidents flanked by their valiant navy seals is another story. As if written in invisible ink between the lines of the history of al-Qaeda is the story of the Patriot Act and the Department of Homeland Security, of the TSA and biometric screening and domestic terror watch lists. It is the story of the creation of an entire infrastructure of legal measures and emergency powers that have quietly transformed the face of the so-called free world. The terror myth has always served primarily as a tool of domestic control. It is a blank check for every government to enact whatever controls it desires over its population in the name of security. And the public, convinced of the need for that security by the terror war myth itself, clamors for more government controls. The problem feeds upon itself. There is only one way to break out of such a vicious circle the underlying premise of the entire terror war has to be called out for what it is. A lie. In the end, perhaps this is how the War of Terror really ends. Not with the toppling of the Taliban, or a mission-accomplished photo-op on the deck of an aircraft carrier, or the announcement of the death of the arch-terror mastermind, or even by presidential declaration not by these or any of the other illusory endpoints that the terror warriors dangle in front of the public from time to time, only to snatch away when grasped at. No. The war of terror ends when the public, having learnt the secret history of Al-Qaeda, decide to consign the real terror threat, the myth of Al-Qaeda, to the dustbin of history.
0: Absolutely. Well done, guys. Absolutely. I mean, just, I mean, I'm so glad you took it there in the end, guys. I think, you know, I've been harping on this topic. I mean, just so absolutely well done. And I have to note on almost a, at least maybe I take it this way, sort of like a positive feeling about this. Like we are seeing through this. People are realizing what's going on. And for whatever that reason is, I, you know, it's hard not to feel a little bit of a positive feeling from this whole thing, you know? So just thank you guys for your outstanding work. Really, truly.
1: Well, thank you for that. Thank you for pointing that out because I think that relates to what we were talking about earlier the fact that false flag as a concept has now entered the public consciousness. And I think the propagandists have to deal with that. And of course, they will find ways to deal with that. And Oh, well, actually the Russians are planting a false flag or whatever, but it has to, they have to increase it and spin it even further every single time. And the mm-hmm. further and further, the more things that are exposed, I think the more difficult it becomes for these would be terror perpetrators to commit outright acts of, uh, of terror themselves and then blame them on enemies. People are, are wise, wiser than they used to be. And I think that does speak to that. And that was, that was one point that's made there just in passing at the very end again it was not enough time this again we could probably do an entire documentary just about the domestic terror Mm -hmm. meme but that was one of the sides of that point the the war on terror the war of terror that they've been waging for the past couple of decades does feel more like yesterday's news like public has moved on baghdaddy oh i think I'd heard that name, right? Zawahiri, who is that again? Was that Oh, that was the leader of Al-Qaeda. He's dead now. Okay, whatever. It really has not been as we saw in 2011, USA, USA, they got Osama. That was that was a psychologically impacting event. These latest ones aren't. So, yes, people are moving on and they have they they are more willing to see through the the transparent lies of the terror war now. Now, absolutely. We In the independent media space have to be gearing people towards applying that knowledge to what we are seeing literally right now they're going to take all these same types of schemes and plans and things they've perpetrated in the past and do them again but it'll be a slightly different variation of it now it'll be bioterrorism or whatever but they're going to try the exact same things and the public is wiser can they do something about that can they use this knowledge
0: yeah, I, I definitely think it's important for people to do the research, you know, and check out the work we've done at the Last American Vagabond. but There's a lot of great people out there focusing on the point of what's going on in Ukraine, the Azov movement, really, the battalion originally, but now it's a broad movement. The entire government's overtaken by this and that the CIA documentably Operation Aerodynamic is on the record of funding and building this group right? It's the exact same thing over and over. We just need to start. I mean, this, I I always feel like that's what we say. We need to start seeing and paying attention. I'm at the point though, where I truly think we're proving that people have already been aware of this. They're just convinced that they're the only one that sees it. We need to realize that everybody sees this. You're not alone. People are realizing what's going on. And if your neighbor doesn't know, show them this, let them see it. You know, I mean, it's a positive note. I can't help but feel that way right now, you know?
1: Good. Well, I don't want this to just be doom and gloom and, you know, oh, everything's fake and it's all been a lie and we're all just doomed. No, we are not all just doomed. We can at the very least learn from history so that it does not repeat.
0: Yeah. And, I, and they're definitely trying to frame people in this country right now and I truly don't think it's a partisan thing I mean I think that needs to be said this is about using a group and dividing the country so you don't see the real culprit of what's yeah. really going on you know? yeah
1: you'll notice that in that, that very short clip montage at the end there with the domestic terror meme Trump was in there too right look they're terror they're domestic terrorists that's what this is, is domestic terrorism and a lot of people on the right would say yeah you know those riots were domestic terrorism well you are buying into the entire You don't know when you say that you don't know the the decades of lies that you are bringing into and essentially validating that check, stamping it. You know, okay, all right, let's use all that terror war infrastructure and now we can use it against the Dems. Yay. And of course, the Democrats are trying to use it against the Republicans. And it becomes that two party illusion that you often talk about.
0: And you can clearly see that, you know, we're talking about the transition away from this, you know, from Al Qaeda to ISIS and so on. But now it's vanilla ISIS. And that's not even a joke. That's something that was actually discussed as, you know, they kind of put it to bed, I think, because it was ridiculous. But they still kind of point at it. But that's what they're transitioning to the at home version. It's very, very public, you know, and I also can't. I mean your work in this, just this documentary series has made this clear but for those that have forgotten the part 1 already which I'm sure a lot of people have already forgotten some of it is the the whole Taliban or the rather Mujahideen point and the the fascist entity really the CIA built that's like the mindset against Soviet Union that's the same point with the Azov movement that's what their documentation literally says a fascist entity against the Soviet Union which later became Russia you know it's it's very transparent And I think we're seeing it. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, questions that I have pulled aside that people had asked. And I want people right now, guys, if you want to go ahead and drop them in the chats, we'll start grabbing them up from any points you want to come at this. I don't know if you guys want to take them about the process Separately well, let's answer if there's any
1: specific content-related questions first, okay, and then perfect. we'll get into process-related questions. So I, I I will finally answer the long-awaited question of the esteemed cotton-headed ninny-muggins <laughs> that everyone's been on the edge of their seat for uh, in the GooTube chat. I hope he has left that chat and gone to Odyssey or Rumble or Rockfin or somewhere else. But anyway, uh, he did write, Refresh my memory. Was it true that SEAL Team 6 all perished in a helicopter crash, allegedly? Well, yes. Yes. Allegedly. All right. So for people who don't know, of course, SEAL Team 6, one of the most elite special forces units in the U.S. military, um, I think officially called, well, DEVGRU. What, what is it? Uh, the uh, Naval Special Warfare Development Group. At any rate, this extremely elite cadre of warriors that is, uh, I, I don't think they weren't officially admitted, but very, very little has ever been talked, uh, spoken about them until the Osama Bin Laden raid and It kind of, it was immediately, oh, it was SEAL Team 6. It was this crack Special Forces squad. And that caused a bit of controversy, um, as we shall see. But yes, just a few months later, in August of 2011, so just a few months after whatever happened in Abbottabad, we get the downing of a Chinook helicopter in Afghanistan um, under the call sign Extortion 17, um, this helicopter went down, killing 38 personnel on board. Among the casualties were 30 Americans, including 17 Navy SEALs. Um, it was the worst single loss of life day for the U.S. in the war in Afghanistan and was also the worst in the history of naval special warfare. Um, the Chinook was carrying a quick reaction force to provide backup to troops on the ground in the eastern Afghan province of Wardak when its Taliban insurgent hit the helo with an unguided rocket-propelled grenade that brought it down. According to the International Security Assistance Force, the team on the ground, believed to be Army Special Operators, broke away from its firefight and moved to defend the crash site, but the damage had been done. The final death toll included 15 members of SEAL Team 6, seven Afghan National Army Commandos, five U.S. Naval Special Warfare Support Personnel, three U.S. Army Reserve Personnel from the 7th Battalion, 158th Aviation Regiment, two U.S. Navy SEALs from a West Coast-based SEAL team, two U.S. Army personnel, et cetera, et cetera, and a partridge in a pear tree. I'm not making fun in our light of this, but uh, there was a list of people who were involved, including um, uh, over a dozen SEAL Team 6 members. Now, the official, the official word is that, don't worry guys, it wasn't those SEAL Team 6 members. So the official word was that um, no one involved in the Osama bin Laden raid specifically was on that helicopter. Um, take it for what it's worth, it's the official pronouncement. But conspiracy theories, as I think even the bastion of truthiness Wikipedia calls them, immediately came up about this entire event. But from a sort of mainstream supporting perspective so um right in the event uh, at the time u.s central command said it was just a taliban fighter that just got lucky with a stray rocket propelled grenade and you know wouldn't you know it killed a bunch of seal team members and other other warriors in afghanistan well uh immediately the family members started to have questions about it and uh, people can read about it. There's a U.S. news report from 2013. Obama put a target on their backs. SEAL Team Six family members say. Uh, there's one from the Washington Mooney Times. Uh, Obama Stonewalls SEAL Team Six extortion 17 helicopter crash crash probe watchdog says. So there was there was some some talk about this, but it was from the perspective that because Osama, uh, sorry. That's an interesting slip that happens more than it should. <laughs> Obama immediately announced, immediately, and the whole administration was blabbing their mouths about every part of that raid, and every part of it was untrue, as you saw. But they were immediately said it was SEAL Team 6. They immediately identified that. And event I'm I'm sure by that point in August, some of the names had actually gotten out by that point. Anyway, um the, the family member said look, you put a SEAL, a, a target on the back of every SEAL Team 6 member in Afghanistan because obviously people were in that area, the, the, the Taliban and others would be angry about this. So the, the theory was essentially that the Afghan forces knew that this helicopter was going on this particular mission in this particular valley at this particular time. And they leaked it to the Taliban fighters who then were ready and knew and set up a trap essentially for that Chinook. Um, so that's essentially where that story went. And as far as I know, th- there was no official probe that ever, you know, got to the bottom of this. As you know, as the Mooney Times and others reported, that was stonewalled. But so, in the end, it kind of supports the official story. Yes, they got Osama, and yes, it w- it was a conspiracy. Insofar as those damn Dems and o- Obama led them into a trap by essentially spilling the beans about SEAL Team Six and their valiant, heroic raid on Abbottabad.
8: Hmm.
0: interesting i mean it's not it's obvious point to think about is whether or not you know these like were the names ever released i can't remember of the people that were involved so has anybody followed up with those individuals and yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. so
1: i i just read uh no easy day um in preparation for this part three um which is the account of one of the people involved in the raid one of the people who actually apparently shot
2: robert Robert o'neill
1: Robert oh, O'Neill, that sounds about right. Yeah. So I, I read uh, No Easy Day. Didn't get much out of it other than official story kind of stuff. But yeah, the, the names are out there.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, the the, the, the the one that comes to my mind from this, the the question that I thought was really, well, first I'll ask the, the there's two questions that somebody put forward around this. And one was in regard to um, Saudi Arabia specifically. And I want to include just in, you know Israel in that and wondering whether or not what we just saw there the real story, the background, is is in the interest of Saudi Arabia or mm, Israel.
1: Right? Yeah, I saw that question. So, uh, here, Braz had a question: Is the war on terror a campaign in the interests of Saudi Arabia?
0: Yeah, and I'm adding and Israel yeah, personally So I think exactly you can
1: absolutely equally say: Is the war on terror a campaign in the interests of Israel? Is the war on terror a campaign in the interests of the United States? Is the war on terror a campaign in the interests of the UK? Is the war on terror a campaign in the interests of Canada? Japan, Australia, I mean, honestly, pick a country. And the answer to every single one of those would be yes. Um, An incredibly important insight about the entire war of terror that we have experienced, are continuing to experience, is that every single authoritarian structure in the world saw the events of 9-11 take place and were licking their lips, salivating at the prospect of having the blank check now we're all fighting a war on terror and we can call our enemies terrorists so we feel your pain america and we're part of the war on terror we're getting those terrorists in name your spot vladimir putin i'm fighting the war in chechnya those damn terrorists in chechnya i'm part of the war on terror um absolutely everyone was part of the war on terror because they could all say whoever was against them was terrorists Everyone benefited from it. Now that does not mean they're all uh, equally culpable. Clearly, Saudi Arabia, uh, Israel, the United States, the United Kingdom all had operational level um, involvement in 9/11 and the various other false flags and plots of the War of Terror on a much deeper level than Canada, Australia, Japan, whatever. Um, but do the who who benefits? Who is the War on Terror in the interest of? Name a government, and I'll show you who it's in the interest of.
0: Interesting point you we touched on a moment ago is the kind of Turkey and Kurds point right where mm-hmm. same point where they're they're a, yeah. a literally in the in the moment an ally or at least a useful tool of the U.S. government. Meanwhile, Turkey's literally calling them terrorists and attacking them, and no one seems to care about them. you know it's it's, yep. it's it's a catch-all exactly. Yep. Well, the the part that I wanted to bring that to was the interesting over the you can't miss a constant kind of overlay of the Shiite Shia divide in this. And that is a, a very clear, it was very few are, are as interested or used that are discussed that as much as the Israel and the United States and plenty a few others. And so the Israel overlap to that, because I, I find that there are even more specific to put a point on at the, uh, the video, let's say of the, the deep fake discussion and the tie back to Israeli spies. And you could make that line almost every single point in this. So do you think that this is more, that it's a, a collaborative kind of effort, or do you think there's one group that seems more behind this than than the others and like for me i feel like that's an israeli government kind of point but i wanted your thoughts on that
1: right I, as i say the operational level detail in these false flag events point back to the intelligence agencies at the very least and various members of the government and corporate structure obviously in israel in mm-hmm. saudi arabia in the united states in the united kingdom primarily um and then when you look at uh uh, what's happened in Syria, for example, you're looking at Turkey and uh, uh, some of the other regional sort of powers there. Um, but it's, I, I, my sense is the intelligence agencies, uh, again, people have to understand the structure of these types of operations. It, even within the intelligence agencies themselves, there's like the the hierarchical diagram that you could draw okay there's the Mm -hmm. director and here's you know the people in charge of this unit and that unit and then there's they report to these people but that's not really how intelligence works at all it is based on individual uh, relationships alliances people cadres groups within compartmentalization of these agencies make it so the groups within can be doing things that other other people in the CIA have no idea about. Other people in Mossad might not know what Unit 8200 is doing and mm-hmm. certain groups within Unit 8200 and all of these different... I mean, it's about people. And there are people in all of these intelligence agencies who absolutely, undoubtedly network with each other and connect on various things. And m- with something like a 9-11, like something that big, that important, it, it's not one particular... Okay, it's this it's this group for this one reason Mm. that type of spectacular event happens because a number of groups, interests converge at that event happening and they will collaborate, um, sometimes just passively knowing about it and looking the other way, sometimes deliberately having agents on the ground, making things happen. But at any rate, those types of spectacular events can only happen when the interests converge on that. So absolutely, uh, uh, Israel, for example, a- as we point out in this documentary, Clean Break, the, the, I mean, look at that plan. That right. plan is to destabilize, ultimately, Syria in the interest of Israel by doing what? By removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. And, oh, yeah, that benefits Israel as well. And, you know, then you get the literal people who are literally writing that report for the Israeli prime minister then being embedded as literal members of the Bush administration, making that happen in Iraq, you know, less than a decade later. You don't, it's not even connecting dots. Those dots are already connected, right? Right. So uh, again, it's just, there's such a mesh of these types of outright on the table things that you don't even have to. I mean, there's no conspiracy theorizing involved here. It's right there for people to see.
0: Look, look no further for that example than the lockstep agenda for COVID-19 for like almost every government world round the same agenda. I mean, you can't look at it any other way. They, there's coordination there, no matter what anybody
1: thinks. No, Ryan, you <laughs> conspiracy theorists! No, no, no. Right. Every single world leader just decided to start saying build back better at the same time for no <laughs> reason.
0: It really is that ridiculous, though. That's that's what's so that's why I think people see this stuff, because it's just you have to choose to think that makes sense against your own internal logic you know it's it's mind-blowing but uh so I, I if you guys want to jump in with some other questions otherwise i have a couple more from the chat brock, brock anybody have any from the yeah, uh, one. Well.
2: Mm-hmm. sure um this one comes from uh are be truthful um and it actually sort of goes back to uh what you were saying just before ryan about actually how you actually got some kind of positive outlook from this documentary which is Good. honestly really that's Awesome, um, but Be Truthful said, "Us, uh, I believed in the AE 911 Truth Grand Jury. I want to believe in the Corona Investigative Committee and their ability to bring justice and protection from these armies of criminals. Do we have any reason to hope for this?
1: It's um, a good question. What are your guys' sense on that? Well,
0: I'll jump in with that. I mean, so I think I, you know, call me a pessimist or you know jaded, but I have a hard time feeling like, from institutional level, like there's going to be some kind of." Some, you know, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, like, like, a, like a court action. You know, I just don't have faith in the court system today, but we should still try. So I, I think yes is the answer. We should always have hope yeah. because we yeah, are yeah, seeing yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. Whether, whether those institutions or the courts actually do anything, we are making this happen as the people. So mm-hmm. yes, 100%. But uh, like, as I think it was Dr. Henry uh, Elay was just talking about, he's got this huge court thing going on, and he's frustrated because so many people are going, oh, that's a waste of time. We should try everything we can. You know, cause I think we're making a difference just by doing that and then being shut down. Even that is an obvious example of how, you know, that the truth is being shut down, that kind of thing. So, yes, I believe so.
2: Yeah, there's definitely right. a place. For there's definitely a place for them. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. put to pin all your hopes on those kind of uh, institutions and stuff. You know, I think it's probably a little naive. Yeah. But, um, but you never know. There might be one day one will get through one of one little chink in the armor. And, you know, that'll only help to um
1: exactly it, yeah, yeah exactly that's my thoughts on this people i I think people are always caught up on the silver bullet and right. either this thing will bring down everything and expose it all and, and these people will end up in chains you know at leavenworth breaking stones or it's a complete failure and no it is always something in between and it, you have absolutely no idea what could come out in some court action or something along the lines that would have some sort of effect that'll have the the ripple effect that will do something you wouldn't ever expect case in point towards the beginning of part three here we mention again as briefly as we can Operation Northwoods, right? Of course, which obviously has relevance to what took place on 9-11. Oh, we're just going to take this plane and and and, and swap out a passenger jet with fake CIA people pretending to be students and, and remote control the plane over Cuba, blow it up with a fake message screaming Mayday on it, and we'll blame it on Cuba. Nothing to do with what happened on 9-11, right? Um, but... Uh, it, how do we even know about Operation Northwoods? Because I make the statement in here that uh, it was first revealed to the public in uh, April of 2001. And I guess that's that's true in the sense that I think the first, uh, to my knowledge, the first national real news coverage of Operation Northwoods was by James Bamford in the LA Times. I'm not sure who he was writing for at the time, but anyway, it was in a mainstream publication in April of 2001. But how did he know about it? Where did the documents come from? How did we know about them? It's because of the JFK Records Act of 1992, um, which uh, opened up all sorts of JFK r- records and re- things. And one of the documents in there was Operation Northwoods. And I believe it was commented on at the time um, when that first was revealed to, to researchers like, okay, here's the, the, all these records that were un- un- unsealed in the, uh, in the course of this investigation. Uh, But it it didn't get really press coverage until uh, April 2001. Where did the JFK Records Act? How was that passed? What was that about? That was because of Oliver Stone's JFK. And suddenly there was this huge wave of interest in the JFK assassination once again. And politicians loving to get out in front of the parade and pretend they're leading it. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll start this JFK Records Review Board. And here's the JFK Records Act. And that ended up resulting in the release of Operation Northwoods. And that that got reported on just before 9-11. It's all part of this tapestry. And you never know what action in what way. Maybe the making of some movie is going to inspire some sort of legislative thing that will release some document that will put a major piece of the puzzle in place. Who knows?
0: I see one thing that we, you know, everybody can learn, has properly learned in life is that you tend to learn more from your failures than your successes. And I think that's the point to take there is that even failures have an impact. And you could argue that that's what that ultimately was, you know, kind of a co-opting of it and acting like we're in charge and they thought this was going to pacify everybody and maybe they didn't. And that just slipped through somehow, or maybe it was meant to come out. Who knows? But ultimately it's, it, we have to see it like that is that, you know, it, it will have an effect as the chink in the armor, as you put it. Mm-hmm. And if you I mean, don't mind, Hey, here's, here's
1: a thought. Would I be sitting here today even talking to you if it weren't for that that release of that record back then? Because one of the things that made me start to actually start paying attention, it was just one of the things, but it was an important thing that made me start paying attention to this crazy 9-11 conspiracy theorizing after you know clicking on stupid videos about flying orbs and stuff. Oh, wait, Operation Northwoods? What's that? And I could go and I could look and literally uh, find online the actual document itself and read it for myself. Oh, they really did plan all this craziness. So that was one important thing along my path towards where I am today
0: back when the internet and YouTube was actually still allowing things to be discussed and looked (laughs) at. (laughs) Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to play a really quick, short, like minute clip that I I pulled up while we were doing this. That was very relevant to the discussion. I'm sure you've all seen Patrick Claussen, the Washington Institute. I just want to play this because it seems so relevant to, I mean, the Iran discussion is still on the table, you know, like that's the Iran was the end game in the discussion of the five, five countries, seven years and all this different stuff. So you guys have probably all seen this
4: crisis initiation is really tough. And it's very hard for me to see how the United States uh, president can get us to war with Iran. Um, Which leads me to conclude that if, in fact, compromise is not coming, that the traditional way of America gets to war is what would be best for U.S. interests. Uh, Some people might think that Mr. Roosevelt wanted to get us into World War II, as David mentioned. You may recall we had to wait for Pearl Harbor. Some people might think Mr. Wilson wanted to get us into World War I. You may recall he had to wait for the Lusitania episode. Some people might think that Mr. Johnson wanted to send troops to Vietnam. You may recall that he had to wait for the Gulf of Tonkin episode. Uh, we didn't go to war with Spain until the USS, uh, yes. d- until the Maine exploded. And may I point out that Mr. Lincoln did not feel he could call out the Federal Army until Fort Sumter was attacked, which is why he ordered the commander at Fort Sumter to do exactly that thing which the South Carolinians had said would cause. Attack. So, if in fact the Iranians aren't going to compromise, it would be best if somebody else started the war.
0: Now, I just did the quick part of that. There's, you know, the more of it where you know, one day a submarine may go down; it might not come back up. You know, like the whole talking. <laughs> yeah. and it's just so. I, I, I was cutting that while. And who would, yeah, who would know? Yeah, you know what happened. But it, right. it's just so on the surface, you know, yeah, the, 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 exactly after exactly the thing that would cause exactly. the attack. You know, it's there's it's,
1: no there's no artifice there. What kind of real literal psychopath talks like that oh initiation is difficult but it's difficult to see how the president could start a war with iran but maybe and the who traditional way like that who who not only thinks like that but then talks about it openly as if well you know you were all buddies we're all in on this right so how can we start something absolute insanity at least at least cheney had the good sense of not talking about that openly right it was as we saw, as Hirsch uh, reported on back a decade plus ago, uh, he, they were going to paint up U.S. boats as Iranian PT boats, put Navy SEALs on them and pretend it was Iranians attacking Americans. Mm-hmm. Just nonsense like that. But th- at least they did it behind closed doors. But here, he's talking about it openly.
0: And and we should con- overlapped this with the, the, you know, when, when Bolton was in with the Trump administration and the whole overlap with what happened there. Remember that all boiled down after the limpet mines and all that to them seeing them move boats in their own harbor. And that was literally all that was there. That was the Bethlehem doctrine, right? And so it's just, these are the things that we know. Imagine what we don't know. I mean, it's probably everything. For all we know, it's that's yeah. How it feels it's
1: today. Uh, like in the '70s. Uh, oh, the Russians are sending MIGs over to uh, was it Cuba or in, somewhere in Latin America, and they were oh my god, the Russians are sending MIGs. And ultimately, what that ultimately sourced from was some satellite photos of crates, shipping containers, and they right. thought, well, these could be MIGs. <laughs> so therefore, they, they are MIGs. <laughs> like right. it's, it, it, they just. Every single time you open up this box, it's the exact same thing because it works.
0: That's one of the earliest things I remember thinking from some of your work, Corp, James, is, is just basically like, like I remember watching the Oklahoma City bombing discussion going oh, you know, what isn't tied to MKUltra or, you know, like, it's just, it's so interesting. The more you dig into these, the more you find fingerprints all over, you know, it, it just maybe just taking advantage, never let a good crisis go to waste or pull cloth. It's just, you know, it's hard not to see it that way today. But uh, I think I had some other questions in here. Let's see. Uh, well, I got Oh, you know what? I had one that was a good broad one. Uh, this was somebody in the Discord asked, uh, basically uh, quoting Carl Rove. Uh, I can read the whole quote if you guys aren't familiar, but he just says the ending of the quote would where uh, we are history's actors and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. And the question is, what do we do to get ahead of this? Essentially, all of this is a big show instead of forever chasing the tail of the narrative. Like, what should yeah. we do instead?
1: Yeah. Uh, I hope people saw my message about slash to the 9-11 Truth Movement on the 20th anniversary last year, where I did quote from that. I talked about it quite directly. Um, but yes, incredibly important quotation. And I hope people will look that up if they haven't seen it. Uh, It it says so much about the nature of the empire that has been constructed, the empire of lies, and the way that it operates. Because Rove is correct, in a sense. They will create these situations out of whole cloth. They will create this nonsense and then, you know, normal human beings who don't like to be lied to will come along and examine those lies and parse them and discover oh this is total malarkey this is nonsense this contradicts that this is but in the meantime they're moving on to something else and i think there is a valuable lesson in there i mean one thing might be to say okay then we shouldn't look at the you know anything we shouldn't examine any of this no obviously i'm creating documentaries about this these lies in order to expose them i think there is value to that but I think we really do have to be careful as researchers, as either independent media producers like we are, or people out in the public who are watching this type of content to, to not just simply get caught up in the current thing. And -hmm. I don't just mean the current thing that, you know, we'll, we'll label all those normies are caught up in the current thing. There are, there's the current thing in the independent media space too, that, We have to all now, okay, now everyone will talk about and think and and examine this one subject. And if you don't talk about this, you're a shill and blah, blah, blah. Oh, what about this? What about that? What about the, what about their, what, what they're doing next? What about this other thing? And people get hung up on this, this red meat that's been thrown out to them about this one particular topic and it becomes the only thing that people start talking about. That's to me is one of the concerning possibilities, trends that can happen in the independent media is that just. They'll throw out the red meat and the stupid lies in certain places and everyone will jump on them like vultures just waiting for that, that meat. And meanwhile, they're off doing other things be- in, in the background.
0: I use the dangling cat toy analogy, you know, and like they just dangle over the top and we all bat at it. And sometimes, sometimes it's, it's like you said, it's, there's information there that is important and we should look at yeah. it, but they, they're just hoping that we take that and go in that direction. And, you know, usually at the end, there are some important lies that just de- derail you in the right direction. Yeah, that, that's what I always pointed out with the Q discussion. You know, there were some things or, you know, or, or even just like, I, I, there's a lot of examples, but where there is things that get, there are things that get discussed that are valid and true, but it's grouped with a lot of, you know, the, it's all, it's, you know, what is it someone said before? The good, the best lie surrounded by 99% truth, you know, however that paraphrasing of that argument goes, because it's, you know, they saddle you with all the truth and you take the lie too, you know?
2: I use the old cliche that, you know, I learned from the past just to figure out to help better guide and uh, provide vision, future vision of what might be coming and what we know is coming. Right. Um, And as we've seen throughout the whole Al-Qaeda story from the very, from the start, way back with the Saudis and the British, all the way through to the end there, the modus operandi doesn't really change that much. There's several differences with when new technologies become available and, and new strategies, of course, but the the fundamental basis of the lies is still there in its core. You know, so if we can really understand that better, then I think that'll serve as well going into the future.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, well said. They really do have play one, two and three. It's what it feels like. It's just, it's just redundant effort with new characters and new narratives. Obama to, you know, the next person. It's it's a uh, pretty obvious. I think I'm hoping people can see that as well. Um, I've got a, I've got three questions that I had pulled off that are more kind of like the next you know, where this is all going. So I don't know if you guys had any more that were like pertaining to the documentary itself before we go to those. I've got Anybody some else? production
2: questions, um, but not anything really pertaining to uh, Let
0: me check this other chat real quick. Uh, I don't really – I don't see anything else. oh, actually, sorry, do...
2: yeah. oh sorry, I do have one. Um, from Dance10Dogs3, um, do you guys think 9-11 was in part to see if people were at the point where they were willing to ignore their common sense, evidence, and blatant, and, and blatant lies and hypocrisy right in front of their own eyes and then accept what was said to them by the government slash MSM?
1: Unquestionably. Hmm. Right. I kind of think that's always happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do I think that's why nine eleven took place or why it took place at that time? Not particularly, but was the public's reaction to that event studied and analyzed and yeah. computed as part of the uh, data that's fed into the next algorithm for the next false flag? Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The public is always being studied in that way, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I agree. I definitely think that's something that's a constant, you know, and like, I think, I think like I'll, I'll use an analogy of like, right now we had the COVID-19 narrative. That's kind of, you know, a, a perceived lull and the monkey pox narrative is kind of jumped in there. And I, I you know, I, I, my gut tells me that's not really going to be the next big thing. It's just kind of like, are they still buying it? You know, do you guys still, are you still worried? You know, and it's, it's a constant, I think. And it's whether it's seen by everybody. <clears throat> um, I got the three last ones I have here are, um, Actually, let's do this one first. Uh, Gr Great Sergi's ghost (laughs) asks any for specifically Corbett any predictions for the American phase of this of this campaign, like the internal you know domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, predictions are always difficult, especially about the future. So I, I could talk about the possibilities because um, there I think that's more the operative question. There are always multiple possibilities on the table. And I don't think anyone, I don't think there is necessarily a script that is written, that uh, you know, this is what's going to happen next year and the year after that and the year after that. I think it's more like, OK, this is happening. So let's try this. No, 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 that didn't work. OK, let's try this. Oh, that worked. OK, we'll go down that road. I think that's more what we're looking at so in the domestic terror meme idea that's being floated there are again multiple possibilities there is the civil war 2.0 type of possibility towards this as i say the left loves to call the right domestic terrorists and the right is certainly tempted to call the left domestic terrorists and they will use this as part of the ratcheting up of some sort of civil war 2.0 so getting you know the old divide and conquer strategy it could certainly work in this case it could be spun off into a different direction um i it could even act on a on a sort of a, a metaphorical level and that was a point that i tried to make in my work on uh covid 911 um slash covid 911 that it's the same idea homeland security and biosecurity is the same underlying idea but with a key difference so in the obviously in the homeland security terror idea the terrorists are bearded, scary Muslims who want to kill you for your freedom or whatever. Um, in the biosecurity idea, it's, well, it's these invisible pathogens that are spreading between people and you could be an asymptomatic carrier. So you could be a terrorist and you don't even know it. You're a bioterrorist. You're a bio, walking bioweapon. And I think that's, that's the way that this starts to go sort of levels deeper and deeper into our psyche with each iteration so that now it doesn't have to be the, I mean, they can do things like the Azov uh, movement and things like that, but it doesn't have to be that literal or that, that outward. It's now, well, may, maybe I am a terrorist. Maybe I do have the, the dreaded scourge of this bio, uh, the bio weapon in, within me. And maybe I am spreading it around. So mm-hmm. there's, th- that could even in a sense, play a role in the domestic terror idea, because essentially what, what else, did we just see happen over the past couple of years, with entire populations being locked down inside their homes as potential spreaders? That is the sort of homeland security idea being weaponized against the average population.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I, it may seem a little on the nose, but my audience knows that we. I, I feel it makes the most sense with what's been presented, and you, as you said, it's contingencies upon contingencies, and if, if we see it too clearly, they may shift in the direction, which you know doesn't mean it wasn't something that was planned like Northwoods, but the idea that this is this overlap has been almost clumsily put together where it, the, the thing that seems the most likely with Ukraine and the bio labs and and newland and all this different stuff is that it, the Azov movement or some entity should they decide could carry out some kind of act in the United States and that's not outside the realm of like historical precedents you know like this kind of act I mean outside the United States but that, that would then tie all of this together—the vanilla ISIS crossover, you know, the the biosecurity risk—and the you know it, it's all becomes the same idea. We even saw the anthrax. Kind of, it seemed almost unnecessary, other than to kind of scare people at that time. So maybe they tried it a little early. You know, I don't know. What do you guys think about that?
2: Yeah, there's always a way that sometimes they can overplay their hand a little bit too much. I know Whitney Web has that feeling with um with the vaccines as well. They sort of maybe overplay their hand a little bit too much, and now a lot of people are really just at their end with with the whole narrative essentially they're done with it they're not gonna they're not listening to the health authority figures anymore they know a vast majority of what we were told is complete bs so there is always that aspect that sometimes yeah they do overplay the hand they do lift the drop the mask a little bit too much and then everyone sort of sees the eye of sarah for, for the first time you know yeah. so yeah
1: mm. yeah the anthrax story in particular is interesting because clearly that was meant to be part of the terror war narrative right but it didn't quite work out. It was very quickly like, oh, this wasn't Iraq. Wait, this came from U.S. West. Oh, hey, woo, again, let's never talk about that again. So, right. yeah, there was a sense that that didn't quite go according to plan. Even even Fort Dietrich, too.
0: Like the whole crossover that was just directly, in my opinion, connected to in some ways to what's going on with all of this. I mean, there's so much there. Again, just to be clear, this is completely my... Theory, my opinion, call me conspiracy theorist, if you will. I think there's a lot to that, just as a possibility, you know. So we have to consider how those kind of things can happen. And that's that concerns me because of how much that was pushed in a very I mean, all of this feels clumsy. So it just makes you feel some kind of impending timeline that we don't see, you know, just have to ask these questions. I think it's important. Well, the last two I have one was uh what's what's up next for the Corbett report. I'm sure you guys have. If you want to give any insight into the next thing, part four, part four. No <laughs>
1: sleep rock. What do you want? What do you want to do? do, want to do?
2: Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, James, you're the, you're the captain of this ship, and I'm just your humble Ew. lieutenant. So, uh, uh, I I, think,
1: I, think I, a- I tried to take a weekend off, but then uh queen of lizard beast kicked the bucket. So I had to write a, uh, a 3,500 word <laughs> expose of the British Royal family after just completing the 18,000 word transcript of this part three documentary, it's a 50,000 word documentary altogether. Um, you know, actually, okay, here's, here's the craziest part of all this. Last night, I actually had a dream that I was in or watching or part of, but also watching, you know, dream logic. Uh, some sort of, it was like either a documentary and or some sort of like Zero Dark 30-ish hollywood production about the terror war and stuff, and I, I swear to God, even Bin Laden's name came up in my dream, which is That's a fine. sign that I think yeah. I've, yeah, I, I've I've kind of reached my limit. I, I think I need a bit of a, a breather <laughs> at the moment. So, Brock, let, let's take a few days, we'll just lie low for a little while while yeah, people think- digest this documentary, and then I'll think about where we're heading next.
2: Yeah, people also forget that uh, James, just literally the microsecond that you that we finished the Media Matrix series, we began work on part three of the Al Qaeda yeah. series. So this has I mean,
1: been a- actually part three. Yeah, I remember penning this part of the introduction to that Zamari Madi story back in like January or something. <laughs> so it's been on yeah. the in the works for a while. But yeah, we really got down to work as soon as the Media Matrix dropped. We're straight into yeah. the next project.
2: This um. <laughs> This plays very well to a question that I got sent in by the one and only, the esteemed Barry Dutton, who I am always uh, informed that he is the unofficial member of the Brock West fan club, which I didn't know. What such <laughs> but right. Thank you, Barry. You are the president and I, I will be uh, <laughs> member number one. Um, he sort of has a two-parter, James. Um, what is the top scene that you really wanted to put in the documentary that we had to leave on the cutting room floor? And I'm sure that maybe you'll talk about in, in future episodes or something.
1: Uh, Ryan, I think you might've mentioned the, uh, Wesley Clark, five, five countries yeah. and seven, seven countries in five years. Uh, that was in there at one point it was chopped out. Um, there's mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff as I've, uh, as I've mentioned before, we will absolutely do a follow-up podcast episode, just showing some of the stuff that we actually did have ready and in the documentary that we had to take out due to time. Uh, that being one of them. But for me, it is, uh, it is unthinkable to do a two hour documentary on the war of terror and to not even have more than a passing reference to the illegal CIA torture program. Hmm. That is such an important and huge story. And uh, unfortunately, one of those stories that, again, the news cycle has long since moved on. People might think, oh, you know, whatever. That was a huge, big thing that happened there. And there was a little section that did kind of at least bring bring up one of the torture victims and how that was used but that's an incredibly important underlying part of the war of terror narrative that the extraction of torture testimony that was then used to construct the 9-11 commission report so you know there's a specific scene that people will see later on but it could have been so much more than that even
0: and don't forget that this is a good point to include the two party illusion overlap there that, that they went from being one of the most horrendous scars on the memory of this country to, oh, it's about freedom now because Trump's in power. Now we're putting the bad guys there. You know, it's like think about how in whether again, I mean, no, actually that
1: because under Bush. Of course, you had the right going, yay, yeah, you know, get those those bastards. And the left going, this is terrible. And then Obama uh, suddenly, oh, okay, what? Torture? Who cares? Whatever. Right. Da, da, da. And then Trump, okay, yay. And Great then the Republicans point. are back on board. It's just, it's so obvious to me, having lived through now the, the succession of the left, right, left, right, left, right game, <laughs> I, I cannot for the life of me understand. I get 20-year-olds, it's their first ride, their first rodeo, they have no idea what's going on, they're just caught up in the surely anyone with a few gray hairs in their beard understands what is happening. Right. Right.
0: Like to hope so. I, I, you know, I, I want to believe that today. I know I'm, I'm beating a dead horse with this guys, but I, there's enough evidence out there for us to think that at the very least more than ever, Are questioning all of this hashtag vote nobody twenty twenty four right? That's where we need to be going. Abstention is a real thing, guys. In protest, but that's for the largest
1: uh, voting (laughs) in every single U.S. presidential election. The largest block of the electorate is didn't vote. Right, every single time. The majority,
0: and and there is a valid discussion to be had. Sorry, sorry,
1: I should say the plurality, because often there's more than fifty percent who vote, but but it's twenty percent for this candidate, twenty percent for that, but. Forty nine percent or whatever didn't vote at all.
0: Right, right. I just it's it's a valid political choice to abstain in a protest, right? Which is not not, not not caring.
1: I, I, let me back you up on that. Um, uh, h- how to free your tax cattle, which I did back. Uh, that was my presentation at Anarkopoco twenty fifteen, um, which was a follow up to how to how to herd your tax cattle, which was a, a podcast I did. People should look that those ones up. They were well worth uh, revisiting. But how to free your tax cattle? I do specifically make the point. Imagine if they held a, an election and no one showed up, right. no one a about, no one was, yes, I choose this person to rule over me. No, I choose this person. What if nobody participated? What the entire system loses its legitimacy in an instant.
0: Yeah, I'll include this in the show notes to check out. I know I, that I just that's a point that I just can't. I hope people will look at this and read it for themselves. You know, the idea that it, it, it's people act like that is lazy or that's going to lead. Well, they're just going to do what they want. Then. Well, they're already doing what they want. That's the way you take from what we're watching here. That's already happening. So we need to show the world that they no longer represent us. And I'm not saying we have all the answers. I I, I don't know. But the point is, we need to start recognizing the problem before we go in any other direction. That's where I think we are.
2: Absolutely. 100
0: mm-hmm. uh The last one from from my side of it was one that I just, you know, that I like because I want this to happen. Somebody asked, please do a screw YouTube song with James at the end. It won't happen today. I I argue because we're not prepared, but I want to do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's do it. Absolutely, Absolutely. Sure.
0: Absolutely. Look, look forward to that because I think I think YouTube needs to be called out more because for all their, <laughs>
1: it's true. I'm just worried that my audience will think it's the only song I've ever written because it's the only <laughs> one I ever play well, <laughs> on the podcast. Maybe but. we should start
0: a band. That's what I was saying. Hey, <laughs> the there you chat.
1: go.
0: <laughs> but uh, that now, was it. actually
1: on that note. Just a shameless little bit of self plug. If people are interested, Kodamosan.com is the the, the website of my band, uh, Kodamosan.
0: James, can you please include that? I want to put that in the yeah. show notes because pe- sure. my audience knows well my SoundCloud and, and the and the, the music sure, I sure, put sure. out. And I have a new one, by the way, yeah. that I haven't actually put on there yet. Um, the truth will come. I played mm-hmm. it live the other day at a, at a show, but I, I want to include yours as well so people can yeah. know that. Because it's, well,
1: it's mostly not political. I think IP Freely is the only song I've ever done that's, that is like that. But um... Mine's all political. I can't help it.
8: <laughs> 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 well, what's but funny then, is yeah.
0: the, the two main songs I wrote that are, are – Hot, like very political and very relevant today i wrote those like five seven years ago which is interesting you know what are you gonna yeah say
1: yeah uh, you know th- this is the thing so much of this is, does not go stale it's not just chasing the the sort of the tale of the latest news story no so much of so much of the I, I, that's one of the things i'm proud of about what i've done in the 15 years of the corporate report is so much of it is still relevant I can go back into my archives from 2007, eight, nine, 10, 11, and bring out stuff that is absolutely as relevant today as it ever was.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, while we're doing shameless self plugs. Um, so, uh, this documentary, again, I hope, I hope people can understand this is an incredible amount of work to bring this to, to in front of you. And, uh, honestly, I, Brock, no one will ever know, but thank you for doing what you do. Um, and being along on this ride with me, it's it's a lot of work, um, but not this isn't a sob story. The 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 point of this is actually it's a minor miracle that this can happen at all, that we live in an age where me, a lowly English teacher in Japan could start could quit his job and start doing this full time because I am blessed to have an audience that supports me in this and brings it to the public. And I can put this out 100 percent for free totally freely available to the world. Spread this to everyone you know. 50,000 word transcript, five plus hour video, audio, all of it completely free because people do support me. So thank you for that. Anyone who does want to support this work and see more documentaries like this in the future, you can go to corporatereport.com slash members and sign up for, to become a, a regular paying member of the website. Of course, also there is the documentaries uh, on DVDs. This documentary is not yet on DVD manufacturing snafus and other things being what they are. I couldn't get it out for today, but it will be available in the future. In uh, in the meantime, uh, if you go to newworldnextweek.com, newworldnextweek.com, you can buy some of my other documentaries, including nine eleven documentaries like nine eleven trillions, nine eleven War Games. Again, all of these are available for free off of my website. So if you don't have to buy anything, but if you want to support it and you want a physical copy, I sell DVDs, various things. And having said all of that, Thank you, Ryan, for the work that you do. Yeah. I know the incredible amount of effort that you put into your uh, productions as well. So, tell my audience how they can support you and your work.
0: Well, thank you, James. I appreciate that. And I just that what I was going to say after that, w- w- what you just said is that that's I, I a lot of credit goes to you and your work and the kind of open source investigation. And I model a lot of that after the work that I've watched from you over the years. And I made a very dangerous and scary choice a while back to go to wholeheartedly. Like just if you want to support this, support me, I'm not going to be advertising. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be influenced. And, Thank I thank God that choice was made. And I, same thing. I am so I can't even express how grateful I am for the people in this chat that believe in what I'm doing, believe in what you're doing enough to take money out of their own pocket at a point when they've probably never been in more dire situation and give it to something like this because they believe in it. And people want that desperately right now. And there's a there's reason for that. So, again, thank you. So for those out there that want to support my work, the best place is always com. I think the, the link is – let me just bring it up real quick. The link is uh, lastamericanvagabond.com uh, forward slash, I think, don't, yeah, forward slash donations, forward slash donations, slash form. That's a little bit weirdly complicated, I guess, <laughs> but, but I'll include it in the show That's so you guys idea. can check out. So. <laughs> but as well as all the, you know, any other places we talk about, subscribe, star, buy me a coffee. But, you know, as, as always, guys, if you want to support this work, the first most important thing you should do is just spread it, get it in front of other people, talk about it. And through that, hopefully that will just create more support, which will bleed over into that kind of donation, you know, and as well as a mailing address, by the way, that's all going to be underneath this video. So thank you, James. I appreciate that.
1: Excellent. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm utterly exhausted. I'm going to go collapse <laughs> into a puddle on the floor somewhere and recuperate for a few days anyway.
0: All right. Well-deserved guys, both of you, we didn't get to the, uh, the background questions, but um, we can maybe <sighs> put those out somewhere else unless you guys want to take one or two, but I think you guys are tired. So you deserve your rest. <laughs> Brock,
1: anything you want to tackle before we go?
2: Just very quickly. Um, uh, another question came in, uh, what was the last 10 days like editing with this deadline? Any thoughts challenges? What's it like? Um, yeah, it's pressure. Um, we, especially with the our, our 9-11 stuff, obviously we have to get it out by 9-11. Luckily for us, September 12th, we are over the, over the date line. Yeah. But yeah, it's a lot of <laughs> We get the extra
1: few hours there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> get the extra few hours. But you know, that's when it really starts to ramp up and we have to go. James and I are sending hundreds of hundreds upon tens of gigabytes of files to each other constantly, checking, triple checking, fine-tooth combing, going through everything, yeah. music, diegetics, all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. to, to get to the finished product, you know. So yeah, of course, as the um the project I started working on was July eighteenth. So to get all that done and See, it was a long time going through it, but now it's really such a short amount of time to get this level of documentary out there. Yeah. Um, so, Although, and,
1: hey, Brock. To be fair, we did finish up a, a four or five days ago. I mean, we've we, yeah. we've had a little bit of a buffer this time, unlike yeah, well, yeah. in the past where we really have been working to the last possible. I think
2: week. I, I think it was part one. Yeah, we were literally down to the last kind of half an hour or something to get this thing done. Yeah. Um, and just one more related <laughs> question about my editing. Um, yeah, As I said, how long how long did it take to edit part three? About six or seven weeks, eight weeks, give or mm-hmm. take. Um, that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, <laughs> nonstop, pretty much. And uh, what software do I use to edit? Uh, I mainly use Premiere for the editing, and then I use After Effects for some of the more intricate, fancier visuals, and then, of course, Photoshop. That's pretty much it. Mm.
0: There's such a hat tip, man. Again, just Brock, you know, even as you saying that I'm sure people still don't really fully understand how much, I don't uh, even think I fully understand what it takes to put this kind of thing out. So well done guys. Really well yeah. done.
2: Thanks, mate. Really appreciate you. it. And thanks to everyone out there for watching,
1: man.
2: Yes, 100%. Thank you guys so much for your support. It means everything to us. And as James and Ryan says, we this doesn't exist without you guys supporting us in a variety of ways. So thank you all so very much.
0: Absolutely. Any last words from you guys before I wrap up?
1: That sounds portentous. Uh, uh, see see you again. We'll, put it that
8: way.
0: <laughs> well, I just wanted to basically make sure we reiterate the point that this is one of the main focuses here was the fact that we're pirate streaming, that we're trying to circumvent the censorship. And that's one thing you can do to support this is. You know, try not to use the platforms that we know are censoring us. Go to the ones that support us, that want that want to allow the free speech and the free discussion to be had, because you don't see this kind of stuff there. I can almost promise you by tomorrow, this will be this will be uh, like the last two already were blocked on YouTube by the time this you know gets some kind of reach. So we just need to realize that they don't want you seeing this, and why is that exactly? Because this is provable information. It's important to think about. So hashtag Corbett pirate streams hashtag. T Lab Pirate Streams. Make sure you support the work, guys. As always, question everything, come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.